One Pride, this is the Roar of the Lions UK podcast, a podcast where One Pride goes worldwide. My name is Anthony Fitzpatrick. I'm joined this evening by Ryan McCluskey. Of course, that is for the college football podcast, Mustang Lashley. Um, Ryan, it has been a big week in college football. We had a wonderful week of championship games. We had a hell of a lot of controversy when it came to the college football playoffs. And the college transfer portal is hotter than a Texas barbecue on a July summer day. There, uh, It's been a crazy week. Yeah, it's probably been one of my favourite weeks of the season where you get the championships, you get the head coach firings, you get the transfer portal opening, you get the college playoff being announced. It's like, it is the perfect storm to quote that nice film. Like, it all comes together and it just, it creates a cyclone. And yeah, it's it's been a hectic, interesting week and it's rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way, I'd say. <laughs> Not more so than a certain member on our regular Lions podcast panel, but that is there. Say, it is a cyclone at the minute. There has been fuel poured on the fire. We have a shorter transfer portal window, so everybody is jumping in there right now. Everybody's bailing on their teams before even ball season has begun. It is very difficult to keep up with it. But over the coming weeks, we will try our best to break down all the big moves. But as of for today, we are going to be taking a look back at Championship Week. We have 10 new or a couple of repeat champions now in college football. All the conference titles have been decided. The playoffs have been set. The bowl games have been set. So we're going to go back over the championship games and then we're going to take a little look ahead forward. Of course, it is our end of season, end of regular college football season show. So we do our end of season mock drafts as well. We did the half season mock drafts halfway through the season, as we always do. And then we do one at the end to see just how much our opinions have changed as the season has gone on. But I must say this year with the Lions closing in on the playoffs, one of those years we've not looked as early in some respect, but we're still going to do it because we always do. And there are a few other bits in there as well. So let me just get all the housekeeping out of the way and we're going to dive straight down into everything because there is a lot to go through. Uh, Royal Lines UK Discord, you want in, we'll send you a link. Main podcast is going to be going live tomorrow. It is the Chicago Bears preview. We'll be having our good friend Ryan Dengel on from Bear Down podcast over there in Chicago. He is a great listen. Do come and check us out for that. Don't forget to like and sub to everything in Twitch, YouTube. Don't forget about Lions Nation at Unite, Herman Moore's pet project to bring together the best in content creators from around the Lions YouTube verse together in one. Don't forget we are a Twitch affiliate. We are monetized on YouTube and we have a tip jar. So if you want to help us that way, we'll be very grateful. But we just love having you all in the building with us. And we've also got a feedback form. So anything you want to see included in the shows, any feedback, just fill that in. We take all advice on Board. Right, let's dive straight down 
into it. We're going to leave all the head coach firings and hirings just for a little while until everything has settled down. So in the news this week, we're really just going to talk about one set of playoffs first. I'm going to hand this one straight over to Ryan, but we're around to the second round of the FCS playoffs to decide who the eight teams are going to be going through to the quarterfinals. So, Ryan, what happened in week two of FCS playoff action? Yep, a very interesting weekend in round two. In the first game, Mercer last week won their first ever playoff game in the, uh, the first round. Unfortunately, they did come up against this weekend the number one team in the nation. That is the South Dakota State Jack Rabbits. And it didn't go too well, unfortunately. Blanked 41-0 by uh, by the big boys, to be expected. Uh, SDSU will meet number eight Villanova. They took down the Youngstown State Penguins in a about the comfortable scoreline of 45-28 in the next bracket. Uh, number five, Albany, the Great Danes. They, uh, they beat Richmond, the Spiders, 41-13 to set up a very interesting meeting between five and four Idaho, the Vandals. They were they had a close one. They just squeaked past the Southern Illinois Salyukas, 20-17, to 17, so one of the low-scoring games. Oh, unfortunately for the Blue Fighting Hens, uh, their playoff exit has come early, it's come swift, and it's come quite heavily. They met number two, Montana, and the Grizz. They're back showing their teeth again this year. 49-19. So, yeah, the Blue Hens bow out at this early stage and probably their last chance at gone at winning some title way before making the jump up to the next level. Uh, number two, Montana will meet uh, number seven, Furman. They fairly comfortably beat a Chattanooga side, 26-7. And the final bracket, the North Dakota State, like I said, the only unranked team to make the quarterfinal round and they had a ding-dong. They took on last year's sweethearts that had the final run, the Montana State Wildcats, and it came down to the very fine margins. This one went to overtime. Montana State scored a touchdown, went to kick an extra point to tie the game up, and it was blocked. And it was a walk-off blocked extra point win for the, the Bison, 35-34. So that was pretty tense. The Montana State Wildcats, the head coach didn't look too impressed on the sideline. When it happened, he looked a little bit a bit upset. And that sets up a, uh, a Dakota rivalry. So NDSU will meet number three, South Dakota, who beat Sacramento State 34-24. And those are our four. Those are our eight quarterfinalists. So only one of them is unranked. I went back and looked. This is on like the second time in like five years that has been an unranked team that's made it through round two. So usually... The top eight teams usually do make it this far, but you can make a case that saying that Bison aren't just any unranked team. They are they are the big boys, but yeah, they are some really interesting matchups. I think Albany and Idaho could be quite interesting. Four V five. But yeah, it's setting up very nicely. Uh the best performances of the week so uh on the ground, North Dakota State running back Tameric Williams went for eleven uh, 162 yards on his eleven carries. Two touchdowns. Montana State, unfortunately, in a losing effort to their quarterback, Tommy Mellor. He combined 355 yards and four touchdowns just on his own. That was on the ground and through the air. 
so he had himself quite a day, but did just fall short. And on the other side of the ball, the Montana State linebacker, Nolan Eskelson, had eight tackles, two sacks, and three tackles for loss. So he was a busy old boy against the NDSU. But yeah, very interesting. And I don't know, I'm looking at his matchups now, and two games I'm pretty sure I expect SDSU to beat Villanova. And I think the Bison will take down number three, uh, Dakota. Montana should beat Furman, but Albany and Idaho, I, I can't pick a right lot between them. So I think these brackets are slowly playing out, but yeah, I say it, it's going to be very interesting. So we're still maintaining the hope in the Montana Grizz then, because they're your pick. They were at the start here, big dominant win. You still got all the faith in them to go all the way. Yeah, they've played two games and they've, they've won them both very comfortably so far. Be interesting to see. If they were to get through, if they were to meet the Bison, Montana v North Dakota State, that would be actually a semi-final. So that would be quite interesting. So I suppose we're going to see what happens on that side of the draw. Yeah, there you go. It's it's setting up. We're at quarter-final week already. The semis are going to be next week. It's going to be fast-moving. So we will let you know how those quarter-finals get on in a week's time and what the semi-final bracket will be. Hopefully your Grizz are still in it, taking down the Paladins this weekend. I think it's the Paladins. The Furman are the Paladins, aren't they? Furman, yeah. Yeah, yeah they are the, I just love the name Paladin. They're just such a great name. But anyhow, yeah, that is everything for the FCS playoff review for now. And with that, we're going to dive straight on down into Championship Week because, as Ryan said, this has been a great week and there were some ding-dong battles in the Championship Games this week. Some not so, which we are not going to dedicate a lot of time to. There's one that's barely going to get talked about at all, but there were some really good ones and we're going to drop straight in. You get in the title of the show, you get talked about first. We're going to talk, Ryan, the one that none of us saw coming none of us bet for they had a big injury last week we ruled them out but we go to the american first up smu at tulane and this is at the g5 ones they play at the winner who were ranked 22nd tulane two and a half point favorites for this one and smu coming into the game having lost quarterback preston stone to a broken leg in their last game before this against navy so they had to start redshirt freshman kevin jennings and things could not have started more disastrously for the Mustangs. Jennings, on the very first play of the game, is strip-sacked by Tulane edge Deveon Deal, and Tulane recover it at the one-yard line. The Tulane quarterback, Michael Pratt, takes it in for a one-yard touchdown run, and it takes just 10 seconds for Tulane to be 7-0 up. SMU on their responding drive, they are able to get the offense close enough for the field goal kicker, Colin Rogers, to attempt a 40-yarder, but he misses it. So you give up a touchdown in 10 seconds, you miss a field goal. 
bad start for them. But then the SMU defence came to life in a game where they were clutch from start to finish. They give up just three yards. Tulane have to punt. And the offence, they return the favour to their defence. It takes SMU five plays to move the length of the field. Drive is capped off with a six-yard touchdown run from Jalen Knighton to level it up at seven apiece. SMU then force a second third and out in a row. Tulane only gets seven yards this time. The offense gets back to work. They get it all the way back to the Tulane 32. But then safety Cam Pedesclu picks off Jennings, stops the drive dead in its tracks. Tulane, they only get the first first down of the game with the last pass of the first quarter. But the drive, again, only lasts five plays before they have to punt. Now, this can, this sparks consecutive three and outs from both teams in a period which sees nine yards of total offense. And when one offense did get it going, Jennings throws his second pick of the game in the Tulane end zone this time, this time to Jarius Monroe. So in the first 20 minutes of this one, the young freshman turns it over three times. But... It is the young redshirt freshman and not the seasoned vet who gets his team out the funk first. With the half nearing its end, Jennings leads a 10-play, 65-yard drive where they had to complete three third and mediums, and he completed it with a big boy throw off his back foot with a man in his face for a 17-yard touchdown pass to the end zone to Keyshawn Smith. SMU go up 14-7. to Pratt has 92 seconds and two timeouts to orchestrate something before the half. He makes a few big plays, but the SMU defense holds up. There's a big sack from outside linebacker Isaiah Smith. They lose about nine yards, forces them to run too much clock, trying to get the yardage back. So they kneel it out. It's 14-7 at the half. SMU, though, they start the second half badly, just like the first. They go three and out on their first offensive drive. Then they commit a catch interference penalty on the punt, which gives Tulane 15 yards and great field position. And Tulane make them pay on a result in third and one. From the SM242, Yule Keith Brown completely busts open the Mustang secondary coverage and the game is levelled up at 14-14 as Pratt finds him. Um, but at this point, there's eight minutes left in the third and those would be the last points that the Green Wave score all game. Jennings leads another scoring drive for the Mustangs. He has a really nice 17-yard run, a big completion on a third and 22 to get the Mustangs into field goal range. Rogers hits it in from 48, gets the Mustangs up by three. SMU defense forces another three and out. They get the offense, their ball back, and then indiscipline starts to set in for Tulane. They should force a turnover on downs on the next drive on a fourth down stop, but they commit DPI which gives SMU 15 yards. And then the very next play, a face max penalty, which gives them another 15 yards. They do manage to stop the next series of three, but the penalties move SMU into field goal range. Rogers hits it from 32 to make it 20 to 14. Tulane's offense goes three and out again as SMU completely smother this two-lane offense. And to make matters worse, the punter then hits a 10-yard punt. SMU get the ball at the two-lane 30. They start off with a run for 16, but then they get stopped. So it's a 32-yard field goal. And with just over eight minutes left in the fourth quarter, it makes it a two-score game. 
at 23-14. They've hit three unanswered field goals by this point. Tulane, they've managed two yards on their next drive. They get a three and out. Um, so three and out for Tulane, three and out for SMU. But by this point, there's only six minutes left. And then the big play happens. Tulane can't even get a first down on their next drive. Pratt tries to make a throw on fourth and four, dangerously close to their own end zone. He's picked off on the Tulane 45 by Isaiah Enwokobia. He returns eight yards to the 37 with 4.28 left. SMU kill more clock. 1.13 of it to be precise. They hit another field goal. So four in a row. It's 26-14 by this point. Uh, Tulane, last drive of the game. It's slow, very slow drive downfield. Takes up pretty much the rest of the game. Michael Pratt gets punished for every inch he takes. SMU rack up sacks six and seven on this drive. Seven comes when Tulane are at the SM, SMU two-yard line, causes a loss of 11 yards. So on a desperate fourth and goal from the 13, Michael Pratt at this point is barely able to lift, I think it's his left arm, from all the punishment he's taken. He throws an incompletion, and SMU are able to kneel it out and celebrate an American championship. The first time they've won a conference championship since 1984, predating both me and Ryan being born. That was a Southwest conference they won back then, and Rhett Lashley and co. I mean, Rye, we didn't see this coming at all. They stepped up when they needed to off one of the greatest defensive performances you're ever going to see in a championship game. And SMU at the end of this were actually worthy winners. It wasn't a fluke. It was a tremendous performance by them. Yeah, this was this was a game for the purists, as they say. There was very little offence. Both defences did a great job of smothering. Sucks life out of both offences. Like I said, when I'm in the discord, like, I thought, oh, I commented, like, oh, terrible start. They've turned over the ball on the first play. And the one. Quarterback actually does a good job. He actually tackles him and gets his knee down at the one, like, and saves a touchdown with the punch it in. Missed field goal. And at that point, I think, this, yeah, this is going to go how I expected it to go. Like, say, Willie Fritz is going to go out on top. And the quarterback, though, Struggled a lot of times, but like I say, especially towards the end of the first half, second half, very commendable. Like I say, very inexperienced, throwing it at the deep end, and it started really badly. And for a lot of guys, that would probably have broken them. But he managed to bounce back. The head coach put me in good positions to win. And he had the, well, had was, he was able to rely on a defense that was able to consistently give him the ball out. The two lane. So weird. I've never seen their offense like fire this misfire this badly. I'd say the runs were getting stuffed. They were not generating the holes. Pratt in general had he had a bad day. I say if that's his last day as a green wave, he'll want to he'll put man never forget it. It it was a rough day, rough outing. I'd say accuracy off target, but yeah, the, the D line was just smothered. His offensive line, which the Boaster go offensive line just could not handle and they could not get anything going. And the weather was swirling winds. And then when as time ticked away, you felt the desperation, like say, Tulane had to start taking risks. 
and a lot of them backfired. Like I said, then the turnovers happened, which just helped uh, SMU. Then just they knew they were home and dry, could just manage the clock. And by the end, yeah, that that last two or three minutes, like I say he, I think they took a timeout. Like it was an injury clock, and you're just thinking, like, why is he in the game? Like I say he's got a bum arm. Like I say, swinging his arm, trying to warm it up. Couldn't even lift it up. And I just thought, I don't think he's going to score it. I don't think he's even got enough juice in the arm to make a throw. Like, they bought him as much time as they could. But I thought, yeah, this is how his day is going to unfortunately end. And, yeah, and it feels like Tulane are about, well, we know they're about to be blown up. Like, say, from the inside out, like, this, they're, they're what could have been a dynasty. It's probably just ended. And I could not believe it. Like I said, but I'm really happy that Rhett Lashley, the Mustangs, like I say, the quarterback, like I say, the Preston Stone that was hurt as well, like I say, I saw him on the sideline, like trying to pick the young man up, like I say, when the offense struggled. So in the end, very deserving winners. And it was probably, yeah, it was the biggest upset, I think, of Championship Weekend. It was definitely one I did not see coming at all. But yeah, I. Uh, and uh, Fritz, like I say, has, has departed. So it, it, it felt like the end of a generation. Who I don't know where Tulane go from here next year. Like I say, need a coach. Probably need a quarterback. Going to lose, like say, the star corner. He's going to the draft. Like, it's going to be interesting to see how the Greenway bounce back. But on the other side, SMU, lots of this talent is going to return. Ray Lashley now is like riding on the crest of a wave. We've got a championship to defend. So can the Mustangs do what Tulane did? Can they can they stack back to back titles? So yeah. I watched a lot of this game and I I did enjoy it. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. And just to so for talking points here, just to put into perspective what the SMU defense did here. So this was a performance for the ages. Now bear in mind their offense committed three turnovers. One of them at their own one yard line, and they gave up just seven points in the game. I'm not going to give them that first one. You can't defend from the one yard line as your first play of the game. They gave up seven points in this game, even though their offense gave up three turnovers, seven sacks, seven quarterback hits. They absolutely destroyed Michael Pratt. Isaiah Smith had three sacks and two quarterback hits on the day. Elijah Roberts, two sacks and a quarterback hit. Nelson Paul, two sacks and a quarterback hit. These all D-line guys, their pressure came from everywhere. In four, Tulane had 14 drives. This is how they ended up in the end. Nine ended up with punts, one in an interception, one a kneel out to end the first half. And the other was a turnover on downs to ice the game. Just two of them were scoring drives. And again, one of those began at the SMU one-yard line. That is all their offense got. Tulane were 2 of 15 on third down. That is 2 of 15 on third down. And they were 1 of 4 on fourth down. The secondary had a pick and four pass breakups, Pratt registered a QBR of 25.6, and I'm going to guess that is his worst of the season by a long way. Tulane registered 12 first downs all game, and their run game, which averaged 163 yards per game coming into, the coming into this, managed just 74 yards, 
And when you adjust the yards, when you take away the sack yardage, they actually ended up with 31 yards overall rushing on the day. I mean, that's just pure dominance, Ryan, from a unit. And this is kind of like what Iowa would have had to have done in their game. But like you said, you've just never seen Pratt and co. struggle like this. If he struggled, the run games bailed him out. Neither facet got anything from SMU in this one. No. Was Smith 58 with the long white sleeves? Yeah, he's the one who got the... I rec- yeah, I knew. Yeah. I recognised the guy that, that kept sacking him because he kept doing like a like an Undertaker celebration. Yeah, like, that's him. Yeah. He, he was a badass, yeah. He was an absolute menace. And he moved all up and down that D-line all day. Yeah, I've never seen a two-lane O-line, a two-lane O-line struggle this badly, like say, with getting pressure. They were... They were stunting a lot, like say, so a lot of the guys were dropping under and coming underneath, like say, they were bringing pressure from the inside. The the defensive tackles were just blowing up big holes for those stunts to come through. The run game just got nothing going, like say, Tulane. Good running back room, like say, it's never been all Pratt, but they got nothing going. And it just felt like whatever Willie Fritz could have done or tried, it probably wouldn't have worked. Like SMU pretty much had an answer for everything on the day. So it 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 was also, I'd like, say, a level of superior coaching as well from Rhett Lashley. And yeah, special teams, I'd say, shout out Rogers, I'd say, because it was windy. I remember it, it, the weather was yeah. bad. Yeah, it wasn't And good. like I say, he, his kicks were, were pretty crisp. So on a day where like, conditions, because we saw other games, like say, where the weather just completely nullified them, like say. Don't have floor drain and got that done, like you say. But yeah, the the weather played a different part. Like you say, it was uncomfortable, cold, windy. But yeah, the 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 Mustangs handled just everything better. The conditions, the turnovers, and their heads just never dropped. No, exactly, and perfect brand of offense. Two hundred and three yards in the air, two hundred and three yards on the ground. So fifty fifty offense. Run the ball well. Throw the ball well, and. You know, you have to give props to the young kid, don't you? So Kevin Jennings, he is a red shirt freshman. He's not played too much football and he's coming in cold. Like he, he's coming in cold to a championship game, the biggest of them all. And like I said, he commits three turnovers in the first 20 minutes of this game. The strip sack, it wasn't really his fault, but still he does that. Two picks, one of them in the, in the two lane end zone, which cost his team a touchdown, but. You'd expect that from a guy who is cold and as young as an experience. But after that, I think it was 12 minutes left in the second quarter, didn't turn the ball over once, did enough through the air and on the ground to just keep drive sustained and to help them get and stay in field goal range, given that he's up against a superior opponent who's experienced. I mean, the mental fortitude to come back from three quick turnovers like that and still lead your team and do enough. I mean, it's a really good day for him when all is said and done, right? Yeah. I think this is one of those things that kind of solidifies how important it is to have a reliable backup. Well, actually, like a, a, a QB3. Mm. Like you say, like, a lot of teams in college have like an elite starter, but they just don't trust the person that happens. If, like, if, if, if the starter goes out, like it's like, you're bailing water out of the ship, like I said, and a lot of teams just can't do that. And we've seen like a few teams in the last week or two that have lost their starter 
on someone's coming and they've done really well or they've just they've just crumbled. And yeah, the fact that it started really badly. Like I say, the first quarter by his was terrible. He looked nervous. He was making mistakes. He was trying too hard. I think he was more nerves and jitters of trying too hard that instead of like bone-headed players, because you you feel an amount of pressure when when one guy like so when Preston Stone leads you all the way to championship, suffers a severe injury, you feel like you've got to win it. Otherwise, all his hard work and the, him getting hurt kind of meant nothing. So he was playing with a little bit more pressure than some guys do, and yeah, he handled it very well. And yeah. Their offense was balanced. He didn't have to take the game on his own, and he did in the end just enough to keep getting them into field goal range, and that's what saw them over the line. Yeah, exactly. Very, very mature performance from him. So can't say enough good stuff about SMU and Rhett Lashley and what they've done. And you've got to watch out for them next year now. As I say, they're bringing back a lot of these players, providing the portal doesn't rinse some of it. So they are going to be one of the favorites for the title next year. As if as for Tulane, like you mentioned. Willie Fritz has gone. He is now the head coach at Houston. There's big question marks over Michael Pratt. Is he going to go to the portal? Is he going to go to the draft? Is he going to come back? Who knows? I think I would err on the side he's maybe not going to. This is going to be a big period of transition for them now. I know the name I saw today is they're going after Manny Diaz, who's the Penn State defensive coordinator. I know there's interest in John Sumrall, the Troy head coach, who we're going to hear about later. It's this is going to be a big hire for them because the Americans very competitive, like all these new teams bedding in it's, you're going to have to work hard to stay up there and they're going to need to nail this or they could soon fall from relevance. Yeah. They've lost out of Manny Diaz. I think oh, have they? Gone. Yeah. Oh. I think he's, got, he's got a Duke. I saw oh. today that he was going to sign his contract. He should be their next head coach. Oh, so yeah. Uh, for me, Tulane, it's an incredibly attractive job. Like I say, you, you, you've got a winning program. Like I say, you've got loads of talent. You've got a great fan base, good school, good home field. I say, but in such a, this is going to be a wild coaching cycle. Like oh, I say, yeah. we've already seen it. I've seen some fantastic hires recently. If you act too quickly, you will get disappointed. And also, you look at the team and, you sp- and uh, any prospective head coach looks at you and think, do I have a quarterback daughter or do I have a quarterback that can, can I bring with me? But Pratt, uh, I don't know, it's difficult. Like He doesn't gain anything by staying at Tulane, but he's not an NFL guy. I just I just don't see it. I don't see the build. Like I say, he's been around in college a long time. A lot of hits. Like, I don't know. I feel like he'll go undrafted, but I feel like he doesn't gain, unless he can get like a big power five over, but I just don't see that. I just no. don't see them them bringing him in, so I think I'd just leave. I think I'd just declare take my chances of going undrafted and battling for a practice squad, or go play in the USFL or the XFL. I can't. That's where I see Pratt in next year yeah. or two. Like I said, that'll be his path to the NFL. Yeah. Just go do what they did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if he doesn't if he's going to go power five, he needs to find a starting opportunity and the right one. But I, I'm with you. I think with so many quarterbacks pulling out the draft this year, might behoove him to go this year and do it instead. Maybe he might get lucky. Who, who knows? We've seen 
we've seen a lot of guys take flyers in the end of a draft, sixth, seventh round picks. So, yeah, we'll see with him. But, yeah, well done, SMU. Tremendous from them. Right, let us move it on. And that was the main one. So we're going to sort of go chronologically now. So two games took place last Friday, just after we did our last pod. And they were two of the best games of the weekend. I enjoyed them both very thoroughly. But first, we're going to go to the last ever rendition of the Pac-12 championship, at least for now, unless anything crazy happens. But number five ranked Oregon against number three ranked Washington. The strangest betting line in history for this one. Oregon, nine and a half point favorites, despite losing the game um, during them between the season. But they look better than Washington recently. They're playing at the Allegiant Stadium Stadium in Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And apparently what happens in the Pac-12 regular season stays in the Pac-12 title game, despite being nine and a half point favorites. Oregon fall on their sword for the second time this year. And once again, it's a game of very fine margins. And I could... So Washington, their opening drive took up seven and a half minutes off the clock. They looked really good, but it ends with Jalen McMillan dropping a potential touchdown pass in the end zone from Michael Penix. Washington settled for a 38-yard field goal from Grady Gross. They go 3-0 up, and the much-maligned Washington defense came to play early in this one. They forced a quick three-and-out from Knicks and the Oregon offense, including a really funny pass from Knicks where he threw it into the chest of one of the refs, which was hilarious. It took them just 35 seconds to get Penix the ball back. Washington then went on a three-and-a-half-minute touchdown drive fronted by Dylan Johnson. He had a run of 16 sandwiched in between a couple of Jalen Polk receptions. And after a defensive holding call, on Oregon, Johnson ran it in from five yards out, extended the Washington lead to 10. It's 10-0. Washington then forced another three and out as Oregon held on to the ball for 90 seconds this time. But then the Oregon defense shows up. They respond in time, in kind, with a quick stop of their own at the beginning of the second quarter. A lot of time has elapsed. Not many drives in this one. Offense then gets going. They spend six minutes getting from their own 10 to the Washington 19, but Finally, they get stopped. They have to settle for a field goal. And it's 10-3 at this point. And then Washington come alive. Their offense wakes up. It takes them two minutes to drive the length of the field. Big completions to Roma Dunze and Jalen McMillan. And it ends with a dip into the bag of tricks. So Dylan Johnson, the running back, lines up under center, receives the snap. And then he just does this little toss forward. And the wide receiver, Jeremy Bernard, is on an end around. He catches it on a trick play, takes it to the pylon. Really nicely designed play and touchdown for Washington. It's 17-3 at this point. And the Washington defense then forces another Oregon three and out. This is not like them at all. And then they spend three minutes getting the ball back into Oregon territory. Gross hits another field goal. And at this point, it's 20 to three in Washington's favor. And it looks like this one is getting out of hand early. But Oregon then wake up with 127 of the first half remaining and one timeout in hand. They drive all the way down the field, albeit they are helped by an absolutely horrendous 
DPI call on Muhammad Jabbar. It was never DPI in a million years. You will never see a worse DPI call in your life, but they got it. Knicks finds Oregon tight end Terrence Ferguson from two yards, gets Oregon rolling just before the half. It ends 20 to 10 in Washington's favor. And then Oregon dominate the third quarter. Their opening drive churns up six minutes of clock. They methodically make their way downfield. And despite getting put in fourth and goal from the Washington two. Dan Lanning, he gets aggressive here. He goes for it. And once again, Terrence Ferguson, of all people, gets Nix's eye, gets his second touchdown of the day, the tight end does. And all of a sudden, the gap has gone from 17 to three. The teams then trade picks. So these are two really bad throws. Michael Penix gets picked off by Kyrie Jackson. He gets blitzed late. He panics, has a complete brain fart, completely overthrows Roma Dunze right into Kyrie Jackson's grasp. But then two throws later, Bo Nix throws an even worse reception to Michael Powell. So Nix is scrambling to the right perimeter. Powell has been forced out of bounds guarding a receiver. Nix doesn't see him coming back on the field in front of his intended receiver, and he throws it right at the Huskies defender in his chest, He's back in bounds at this point, so it's a legal play. He won't ever have an easier pick in his life. It is a terrible throw from Bo. Um, Washington then put together a four-minute drive, gets to the Oregon 28, but then they get aggressive on fourth and two, and Penix gets sacked, and Oregon turn it over. Bonix then pulls off a 44-yard scramble on the back of this to the Washington 11. Huskies get punished for offside, and then next play, Jordan James, six yards out, runs it in, and Oregon turn it around from in 20 to 3 down to 24 to 20 leaders. But this seems to wake Washington up. They get it together. It's at the start of the fourth and the end of the third. They grind out a five-minute drive, ends with Dylan Johnson running it in from a yard out to get Washington back in front. And then the two clutch drives of the game from Washington, the defense gets a stop. They get Oregon off the field in six plays and they give Washington the ball back three up with 8.54 left. The offense then drains the clock all the way down to 2.44 and they get a touchdown at the end of it. Quentin Moore, two-yard touchdown pass from Penix to put Washington up two scores, 34 to 24. And you're thinking, maybe that does it. But Oregon are not done. It takes them two plays and 30 seconds to get all the way down the field. Treshawn Holden is on the receiving end of a 67-yard touchdown pass from Bo Nix. And at this point, Oregon still have all their timeouts left and two minutes on the clock, so game on. But then Dan Lanning makes a very curious call to onside kick it and try and get the recovery, but he ends up giving Washington the ball back at their own 45 rather than trying to pressure them near their own end zone. Washington get a first down, but Oregon have them at third and nine with a minute left. But then Oregon, uh, Washington, with the play call of the day, they run the ball. Dylan Johnson gets 18 yards. It is the most clutch 18-yard run he'll ever have in his life. They convert. They kneel it out to claim the last ever Pac-12 championship, their first since 2018, and secure their route into the college football playoffs. Ryan, I don't know about you, but I could watch these two teams play all day, every day. Another fascinating encounter between them and Washington by hook and by crook 
despite not looking good, every time they've faced obstacles, they've just found a way to overcome them on the way to a Pac-12 championship. Yeah, it was a weird game. It definitely wasn't as good as their first meeting. Like I said, it was a lot a lot less offense. And it's weird, like even though they won, I think this game may ended any chance Penix has at the Heisman. I don't think he had a very good game. Actually, I think the last two, three weeks, he's cooled off massively. Maybe that's teams playing well against him, but he's not looked great. Whereas Bonix I actually think Bonix could finish higher despite losing in the Heisman voting because he has been pretty phenomenal. Yeah, but yeah, it was a weird game. Like you say, Dylan Johnson in the last few weeks, the run game has, has become really important to Washington, I'd say, in the last month or so. Like they were winning games by literally just passing teams to death for the first month or two. And the running game, it helped, but it wasn't the main factor. But that's changed a lot. Like say, uh, Dylan has come massively around. Like say, in the last few weeks, he's had some really clutch performances, taken some of the pressure off of Michael when it was needed. So, and then, yeah, like I say, both picks terrible. Like I say, Bonix, you always say you do not throw back across your body when you're running out of bounds because it just don't work. And yeah. It, it it was it was rough, but then Washington, yeah, so their pick, like you say, I saw that, like it properly sailed, like you say, you just take the sack, like you say, he tried to loop it over one defender in between another, a Rome, and like yeah, it just into the way and clutches. But I hated the uh, onside kick call. Yeah, I it did. was. It there's brave, and then there's can we execute a player that has like what like. 1% chance like across the season of being successful when the game online like no like it you might as well just have trusted the defense like I say I just I just onside kicks they're just useless they just have such a small success rate I understand he felt like it had to but it just felt like a a desperation move like say, and yeah I think the best team won. Like I say, it wasn't the best game of the weekend, but you could feel the pressure. Like I say, because it's both quarterbacks' last game. Definitely, like I say, and they've they they've got one eye against like not playing in a bowl because I am. Oh, if we don't the playoffs, or like going to the draft. Like I say, so there are a lot of bigger things at stake. But yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss the Pac-12. I'm pretty sure some people think like there'll be a pack party that's being incorporated. I'm adamant no, this is this is it. Like say Washington State and Oregon State will find new homes after next season. And the pack will it will just disband, unfortunately. But yeah, we've had two ding dongers of Washington and Oregon this year. And I hope they find ways to find and play each other again in the future. They need to put some series together. But yeah. Caitlin DeBar, he has done an absolutely phenomenal job in his yeah. time at Washington. I loved the hire, like say, when he came from Fresno State. I thought that he's going to do well. And Dan Lanning, equally, I understand why people like have speculated like he could be back ready, like back in the SEC in 18 months. Like say, it didn't win, but this Oregon team won a lot of hearts. And Bo Nix did his draft stock the world of good this year. 
he's now back in first round contention, I'd say, and he has been probably more consistent than Penix, but never kind of reached the heights that Penix could. But yeah, I'd say I've just loved watching uh, McMillan, Adunze and Polk all season. Yeah. Like for me, they're the, they were the best trio, trio in the nation for me. They were just all offered something very different. And yeah, you take away one, you couldn't take away them all. Like Adunze was fairly quiet, but McMillan came up big this week. So it's like a hydra. You cut off one head, but there's still two you got to worry about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was Polk this week. He, he's 57 yards, but Jalen McMillan, you mentioned 131 for him on the day on just nine catches. Dunze had 102 on eight. Like you said, it's a hydra. Someone slows down, someone picks it up. And Dylan Johnson... I his... like that. They like the weapons. I've always liked Troy Franklin. Yeah. I'd say good with like top 100 pick, but there was no one else for me. Like I said, Terrence Ferguson like, came up big this game, but they've never been about well, tight ends of Oregon. No. They don't send them to the draft. They don't use them really well. Because I know Patrick Herbert's there, Justin's little brother, but he's not really a facet. The tight ends, like, just a lack of wide receiver depth, like, say, kind of has just hurt them a bit this year, I think. And they lack, I think the big thing, they lack the ability to run the ball, like, that was the trouble. So many three and outs because you can't run the ball. Dylan Johnson, they say he's been huge. If he doesn't emerge a month ago, this Washington team's not in the playoffs. Like full stop. They're they're not making it. He has been that good for them. And I mean, what was he in this one? He was twenty eight carries, one hundred and fifty two yards, and two touchdowns. He's averaging five and a half a clip. That's first down territory. He even threw. He technically threw for a touchdown. It's it's not really a touchdown throw, but he's credited with a touchdown pass as well. So he does everything he needs to for this team. But in terms of the game, I thought, because after the first one, Dan Lanning was terrible. His game management was terrible. Up until that onside kick, I thought he called the perfect game. The onside kick, the problem I have there, you're giving it Washington at their own 45. There's no pressure on them in midfield. Like, you know, even if they go three and out, they're still punted to your 10 or your five and you've got to get all the way back down the field. You put them back at the 25, they're under more pressure. They're nearer their own end zone, get a sack on first down and all of a sudden the pressure builds. So I don't understand giving it Washington at midfield and giving them a lot more freedom to do what they wanted to do because in the end, they got it. I don't think they'd have converted the third down if they were right on their own goal line. So I, I just I just don't agree with that one at all really um but outside of that washington were great i mean i think they've earned their right in here i mean doesn't it feel a shame ryan don't you feel like if the pac-12 situation at the start of this year just gone was next year you've seen ucla be good utah usc have been rubbish but washington oregon arizona you could have had a conference fully. You could have had one of the best Power Five conferences. They've shaped up to be. There's so many good teams in the Pac-12 now, and you feel like a TV broadcaster would have taken it up if offered it now before the split. I feel. I feel like it was just 12 months too late. But this conference, as it stands now, would have been a draw for a TV company. It's probably been mismanaged. Yeah. <clears throat> right. You've seen the emerge. You've seen like loads of really good teams this year. But they've all had their futures already decided, destined to go elsewhere. It's like it's it's wasted potential, I'd say. And 
it's it's a combination of well, it's a lot of things. Like I say it, it's money. Money is a huge factor. Like I say, these guys aren't going to the Big Twelve for for nothing. Like I say, they they, they want money, recruiting things like that. Like it's just it's sad. Like I say I agree. Yeah, like it's taken Arizona to be leaving for the Wildcats to have a like a top fifteen team here, and Jeff Fisher to have like a head coach here, and like and then Washington. Like I say, made the playoffs. Oregon just finished on the cusp, uh, and then State. You just got like say, yeah. Like I say, uh, and like I say, you've just got the whole enigma that's Colorado. Like that could have carried the Pac-12 for a couple of years until till Dion leaves. So yeah, it's all it's all lit, too little, too late, and they're all going to go on and potentially do big things. Yeah. Yeah, and the I'm... problem is now if you if you are adamant that you want to go get like all the outsiders and we'll, we'll rebuild the Pac-12 from scratch, who are you going to build it with? It's not going to have mm. any playoff contenders. No, you can't go take the best of the Sun Belt and the Mountain West and put them with Washington and Oregon State. That team's never sending anyone to the playoffs. No, because it'll just be full of leftovers that no one wants. So. I think it's better to just do away with it than try, don't try, like, make some, like, necromaniac, one of those hammer horror body part freakish <laughs> things. Like, that'd just be a disaster. Like, just, 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 just leave it be. Don't yeah. pet cemetery it. No, no. It, it, it's just such a shame. It feels like one more year you could have shown just how much you had with the pack and it's not a ball. Anywho, that's a conversation for a different day. Washington incredibly deserved winners. They are going to go to the playoffs, which we are going to discuss the ramifications for in a bit. The other championship game that took place on the Friday, and oh, I love this game so much, but it was a heartbreaker towards the end for me. The CUSA championship game, New Mexico State at Liberty, and this was an absolute wonderful game of football. It ends New Mexico State 35, Liberty 49. Liberty, Ryan, this is their first ever championship at FBS level. Obviously, they've been in the FCS. They made the jump up as an independent. They've been an independent all the way up until this year. Them and New Mexico State both joined the CUSA in the same year. They have fought it out for the title and Liberty, first year, Jamie Chadwell, first opportunity, they get their first title. But this was an absolute banger of a game from start to finish. I watched it simultaneously with the Oregon and Washington one. Had so much fun. New Mexico State, they were not bystanders in this. They came out and put their flag down on the floor. First drive in the game takes five minutes up. Diego Pavia, the quarterback, runs for 25 yards and uh, for, for 25 yards for a touchdown, perfect opening first drive as far as they go. Liberty hit straight back, though, four minutes later. Quinton Cooley, first of his three runs on the ground for touchdowns for the day from one yard, levels it up at 7-7. Seven, seven, but New Mexico State do not go away. And on their second drive, which spills in, 
to the third quarter, the second quarter. There are not many drives in this to start off with. Diego Pavia finds Ron Tiavasue from 10 yards for a touchdown. New Mexico State take the lead again, but as is before, they just cannot keep that Liberty offense out with five and a half minutes left in the first half. Quinton Cooley runs 12-yard touchdown, levels it all up there. And before the half, Liberty get a stop. Caden Salter finds Noah Frith from 26 yards with 27 seconds left in the half to make it 21 to 14. But you will not believe what happens with 27 seconds left. They actually get a touchdown, New Mexico State, in response before the half. Pavia, several really big passes, gets them to first and 10 at the Liberty 17. Pavia finds Trent Hudson for 17 yards for a touchdown. It took them 24 seconds. So at halftime, it's 21 all. And it was just a wonderful half of football in there. You come out for the second half, Liberty get the ball first. They score off the first drive of the half. Quinton Cooley again for his third touchdown from four yards out. The Liberty offensive line is crazy good. Liberty are 28-21 up at this point. And then you think it starts going wrong for New Mexico State. They get the ball back. Four minutes later, Caden Salter finds CJ Daniels from 20 yards out for a touchdown. And all of a sudden, it's 35-21 and you think, yeah, done and dusted. Not so. 12 seconds later, after that Liberty touchdown, Diego Pavia to Jonathan Brady for 75 yards. Brady outruns about half a dozen Liberty defenders on a slant and just takes it all the way. Quick score. New Mexico are backing it. And then they make a rare stop and they're able to get the ball again. But then comes the killer, Diego Pavia, out the game with an injury to his shoulder. He takes a big hit. I can't remember who from. And they have to bring him back up, Blake Berlovitz. But does that hinder them? No. With three minutes left in the third quarter, Blake Berlovitz finds Trent Hudson from 11 yards for a touchdown and New Mexico State claw back from a two-touchdown deficit. Moving into the fourth uh, Liberty get the ball. They start off with it. They get another touchdown. Billy Lucas runs for two yards for a touchdown. It's 42 to 35. And then you get the big play of the game in terms of determining this one out with nine and a half minutes left in the fourth. New Mexico, a second and 10 at the Liberty 22. They're threatening to get level again. Berlowitz is intercepted by Brandon Bishop in the end zone. He kneels it down for a touchback, and that's where they start to fall behind. And a minute later, Caden Salter, he runs for 35 yards for a touchdown, and all of a sudden the lead is back up to two scores. And New Mexico, with the backup quarterback in, are just not able to get going. There's a few stalled drives, and then Liberty are able to see this one out for two scores. Um, I don't know how much you saw of this, right, but tremendous game. Liberty are unbeaten through the year, so probably rightfully champions here, but New Mexico State did not come to make up the numbers here. They performed very, they performed incredibly well 
on the big stage and just came up a little short to a superior team. Yeah, I think unfortunately we were robbed of a game of the year contender when Pavia went out. It 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 just felt like the backup did an okay job, but I just felt like he's not got enough. He doesn't have that spark to overturn this like two score deficit that Diego might have had. But yeah, it was hammer and tong back and forth to offensive juggernauts, I might say that have gone. They've done it the right way, both of them. They've bided their time. They've had their their rough seasons. They've uh, they're young. They've made good coaching hires. They've uh, brought in good players and they've built around them. And it's reaped their awards this year. And yeah, Liberty they were the best team in in the conference. I just can't all season. Like I say they had the complementary between currently being a stud. Salt have been able to throw the ball really well, but also an elite dual threat quarterback. I said that if you've got the two of those three, and they had three of them, you're going to do pretty well. And Jim Chadwell, we know he's a good head coach from what he did with the Chanticleers. So I, I wasn't too surprised that he made the jump up pretty quickly. New Mexico, like I say, they were, like I say, not many people ever imagined that they'd been in that position. Been in a title game, let alone level at half-time with a powerhouse like Liberty. In the end, yeah, they ran out of steam. Like one costly player, it, it turns its game on its head and it was just insurmountable. But I, there's no real losers in this game. Like I said, they never thought they'd be in this position. Like I said, and they've, they've gained experience. Uh, they've won the fans back. Like I say, they've got them on side. They're happy. They they can look forward to the future. And the whole conference as well now, it, it looks like it's it's going to be pretty competitive for the next few years. So it's fun to see. Liberty, rightfully, I think, the, uh, the New Year's 16. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I, I couldn't fault that, to be honest. Like I say, you go undefeated, you win your national title, like, you get it. And yeah, they deserved it. But yeah, this was one of the better championship games of the weekend. Yeah, and they're going to go on and face number eight ranked Oregon in the New Year's Six Bowl. So, I mean, what a result for them. But this is where it comes down to, I mean, I think Matt mentioned it when he was on last week, the amount of offense in this game, 650 yards for Liberty. But you want to know what's even more incredible? Their rushing yards... 395 yards on the ground. Caden Salter, 12 carries, 165 yards and a touchdown. He's the quarterback. Quinton Cooley, 11 for 71, three touchdowns. Aaron Bedgood, five carries, 72 yards. Billy Lucas, 14 carries, 86 yards and a touchdown. I mean, what did we do? They averaged 395 yards on 45 carries at 9.1 yards a clip. When you get in a, that, and that is the trouble. Time of possession. You cannot come back when someone's running the ball so well, but that is not to put against what New Mexico State did. They had 470 yards of offense on the day. They had 300 through the air, 177 on the ground. They were going at 6.3 yards per carry. It's entirely respectable. Their Pavia, 
He was 11 of 16 for 188 yards and three touchdowns when he got knocked out. And he was running at nine yards per carry and had a touchdown on the ground as well. So that is the turning point. Berlovitz comes in. I mean, he's nine of 18, 103 yards, a touchdown and a pick. For a backup in a championship game, they are perfectly respectable numbers. But Pavia is where it went down. He had an 88 QBR. They were playing well. I mean, defense was pretty much non-existent. In this game, there were no sacks at all. There was just the one pick from the backup for Liberty. So turnover-wise, they were quite they were quite good in that respect. And yeah, just all the offensive metrics are green across the board. It was just a wonderful game to see. But like I said, there's no losers in this one, are there? New Mexico State set up well, keep kill, go into next year. And Chadwell and Co. I mean, just keep on being dominant, I guess, going forward. Yeah. But if these two keep hold of their players and more importantly keep hold of their coaching staff, then they'll both be back at some point in the future, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would fully expect to see them there next year. So we will we will see with that. But yeah, for Liberty, first ever FBS championship, they're going to the New York six uh, the New Year's six against Oregon and I mean hell. You can run the ball like game, that. that. Yeah, because Oregon cannot run the football and Liberty can. So I I smell an upset somewhere on the horizon and we'll see how confident we are next week because me and Ryan will start bowl prediction season next week. So we've got to make a guess on this and who knows, maybe with whatever happens with Oregon, we'll see what happens because I'm not sure. Who is Oregon's backup now that Nix is going is it the young... They've got a young five-star in there, don't they? Or did they lose him? I'm just mm. trying to think who the Oregon backup is now. It's not... It's not Ty... Is it Ty Thompson? It's not Ty Thompson still, is it? I don't know. Uh, I'm really intrigued now. So, obviously, Nix is the main guy in there, but I don't know who else they've got in there at the moment. It's... Oh, he is going to play. So Bo Nix is going to play in the bowl. So, okay, that's going to be really fun. They get to play Bo Nix. That's brave from him as well. To play a group of five team in a bowl game when you're coming up to your draft is brave. I mean, everybody remembers um, the old Miss quarterback, Corral. He got injured in one of those games. Broke his foot in the bowl game, didn't he? Yeah. So that's brave. I wonder how long he'll last in it. But yeah. Anyhow, fair play to Liberty. Big win for them. Um, moving on into Saturday. And you know what? I'm, I'm just going to hand the floor over here because Ryan has been predicting this for weeks and weeks and weeks because he wanted to pour flames on the college football playoff committee decision they were going to be making the day after. But you called the SEC title game number one ranked Georgia playing number eight ranked Alabama. For weeks now, you've been saying Bama win, Bama win, Bama win, and you got your wish there, Ryan. This was, again, another – it was close. Ends up 27-24, but Alabama get too far in front and Georgia not able to claw it back. But you saw this coming and it happened. Yeah. I also predicted the playoffs too. Like I said, I got the four right <laughs> team, so I could make it. Yeah, it was just, there's just no denying Nick Saban. Like when when it comes down to the big games, he's a, he's a big game guy. And I'm also willing to admit that 
I didn't have high hopes for Jalen Milrow at the start of the season. Or like a month or two in. But the last couple of weeks, I can see why he's the Heisman favourite already for next season. He's been he was fantastic last week and yeah, he was great against Georgia. He looks every bit of the potential next star, like in the the conveyor belt. But this Bama team is just it's just littered with talent. Especially somehow wanted Detroit as well. There was some standout performances like the that D- Dallas Turner. He he has got some motor. He's a he's a wrecking crew. I'd say guys like Kool Aid. But yeah, I I just thought like they just in recent weeks like they kind of just turned the corner. I just feel like Georgia was still winning, but like they weren't blowing sides away. But Bama were like getting guys back healthy, which was important. Like say they were starting to run the ball better. Their defense was getting good. I just thought these two were on a collision course, and I just, I just trusted them, and yeah, I, I was, I was proved right, and it was a, it was a good game. Two young sides, inexperienced, like I said, which is not often you say about Georgia and Bama. Like I said, there's a lot of like young freshmen, sophomores, because they've had to reload so quickly about the talent. But yeah, this went, this one went exactly how I thought it would go, and. Then that influenced how exactly I thought the playoffs would go, but yeah, it it was a good game, and like I said, I was I was, I was really impressed by some key performances. Georgia struggled for them because, like I say, Brock Bowers was back, but he looked terrible because he's hurt. He you could you could see he was not comfortable in that game. He was not a weapon, like I said, Lad McConkey as well. Like I say, he was playing gimpy. And he's quite important for them. So that that their big weapons were were not at the races, and that made life pretty hard for Carson Beck on the day. Yeah, and, and he had that big fumble as well, didn't he? he? Coughed up the ball at one, but it's like just that rookie errors that is because I'm pretty sure they were close to the Bama end zone when he did that, and then to sort of turn it over. Anyway, but you know we talk about. Um, Dylan Johnson and his emergence like in the Washington team been big for them I feel like I've had the same experience with Roy Dale Williams this year the Bama running back it feels like I've rooted against Bama a lot this year because they've been bad and they could have lost a lot of games and it feels like every time they're on the cusp of like being in danger or something happens he just finds ways to run the football and move the chains and extend drives and get touchdowns and like it feels like he's been just as pivotal as Milrow finding his confidence to this to this Bama offense. Yeah, because Alabama, when you think about them, it is a powerhouse running backs. How many have they had in like the first round of the draft? Mm-hmm. And then when you started this year, when you look at that team and you think there's there no one. star running back, there isn't one there. Like I say, it's a position that have they neglected? Has it been overlooked? Might like say, are they asking Jalen Milrow to do this all on his own? And for a couple of weeks, it felt like, yeah, they're going to have to try to do this without a run game or anything consistent. But on the big stage, when it really mattered, it took pressure, might like say, because he got them the crucial third and fourth downs. Like I said, there weren't massive runs, they weren't explosive, but he kept the chains moving when he had to. Like you say, because both all lines, both D lines, they were dominant. It was a oh, proper yeah. clash of titans in the trenches. 
God, that some of those guys are just absolute freaks. Right? So, yeah, one team ran the ball better than the other, and in the end, it decided to be quite a big factor in the game and who won it. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to mention that Eli. So it's a 22% havoc rate for Georgia, 20 for Alabama. Like They're both high 80% aisles there, but Dallas Turner, you mentioned, highest graded player in the game. He had a sack on the day. You had Jalen Walker. He's the linebacker, I think, for Georgia. He had two sacks, and he caused all sorts of problems on the day uh, for Georgia's defense as well. It's like, let's say, there's just so many studs in there who are going to who are going to get drafted high in there on the it was it was it was very bruising. There were a lot of yards in there, but you took your punishment getting the yards in it. Yeah. Yeah. I I I expect to have well, if you had to guess, you're gonna have at least 12, 13 players collectively called their name in the draft from these two schools. There's a couple of first rounders in there. Yeah. Oh god, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think of on the offensive line, you've got Van Pran for Georgia. He's going to be a high draft pick there. I think the right guards. Laid them on Bama's side. He's going to be a high draft pick. Maybe I think Latham's a first rounder, bona fide. Van Pran's a day two guy. There's a lot on there. I don't think we were having a chat earlier about uh, the, the Finnish recruit that they've got on that Bama line, but I don't think he played in this one. He's he's kept his red shirt. He played four games this year, but we did he didn't see the field, unfortunately. But who knows? Maybe we'll see him a bit more going forward. Um, but for Bama, yeah, it's another title game, another championship for them. They're going to the playoffs, which we'll talk about shortly, but they played a clean game. There was only one turnover in this game, and that was that bet fumble, but... Bama did it when they needed to, as Bama always do. So SEC champions, Alabama. Right, moving on. And I don't really want to spend too much time on this. If you can't be bothered to turn up for a championship game, then I can't be bothered to really talk about you. And you're not going to know exactly which game this is. It's the Big Ten title game, which was just about as pointless as it suggests. Number two ranked Michigan, playing number 16 ranked Iowa. Michigan 26, Iowa nil. I don't I don't know how you score nothing in a championship game. I don't know how you're good enough to to get to a championship game. Um, but I'm just gonna come out right and say it, all right. This was ugly AF. Like Michigan, 213 yards on the day, Iowa 160 yards on offense. Michigan going at 3.3 yards per offensive play, which is third percentile. Iowa went at 2.8 yards of offense per play. So give them five plays, they'll get a first down. That is first percentile. You can't get any worse than what you did with that there. Explosive play rate, don't make me laugh. Nothing happened in this one. I'm just... Is there anything you want to say about this? It just reeked of embarrassment for a championship game. All I'm saying is I'm glad that the Big Ten West doesn't exist anymore. And this matchup may never happen again. I won't surprise Good. because didn't Penn, didn't Penn State beat Iowa 33-0? Yeah. But like week five they did, yeah. I, I, I knew Iowa wouldn't score because I can't put blame on Dax Hill because like the quarterback he's not very good but he wasn't the starter. Their run game, subpar, and their defense 
lacking their star maker in Cooper Dijon. It held up as long as it could. It just won't very long. They made the game ugly. They dragged Michigan essentially into a bar fight. And Michigan won't be up with their performance, but they did mull enough to win. And yeah, it won a great game. The Wolverines, yeah, they just huffed and puffed until they could blow the house down. That's what you got to do by Iowa. So Michigan did a, it was a professional performance. Did what they had to do. They knew that with a win, they'd make the playoff. And that's what they got. So yeah, it, they were, they'll expect to play a lot better than that in the future, but their opponent dragged them down with them. Yeah, everybody joked when Michigan hit their first field goal that it was game over, but unbeknown to them, they'd have been right. <laughs> there was just nothing. I, I thought it would be tough for Iowa to be worse than they were last year when they got hummed, but they managed it. They somehow managed it. That's the only good thing I can say about them. They somehow unscrewed themselves a little more compared to last year. Um so yeah, that's it. Big Ten, Michigan win, third year in a row. They're going to the playoffs. Good for them, but I'm not going to waste any time talking about that whatsoever. Moving it on into another game that was ugh, disappointing. I'm just going to say it outright. It was very disappointing. We go to the ACC, Louisville playing Florida State and had a lot of high hopes for this game. And this one also was absolutely terrible. Louisville at 6 Florida State 16. Florida State win their first ACC title game since 2014. This was Louisville's first um, attempt at the big one. And let's just suffice to say it wasn't very good. Let, let me go through the quarterback stats to tell you how good this was. Jack Plummer on Louisville's side, 14 of 36 I'm pretty sure that's somewhere in the 30 percentile there. 111 yards, no touchdowns, one interception. Brock Glenn on the Florida State side, he is the third string, the freshman. 8 of 21, 55 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. There was no good QB play in this. Most of the good stuff came from the run game. Florida had Florida State had 190 yards on the ground. Uh, Louisville had 136. Lawrence Toafili, the guy for Florida State, 10 carries, 118 yards, and a touchdown. I believe it was the only touchdown scored all game. Um, uh, Jawar Jordan, star running back for Louisville, he had 14 carries, but only managed 52 yards at 3.7 yards per carry. The Louisville... Offensive line got dinged. And when I say it got absolutely dinged, let's just say the carry the pressure rate here, 21% havoc rate for Florida State, 14 tackles for a loss, nine in the passing game, five in the run game, seven sacks of Jack Plummer. But on Louisville's side, they had 10. They sacked. Glenn, four times. They had six tackles for loss in the rush game. Anything good that happened in this game came from defense. And another one, right? Just, it felt rough. Florida State's play calling was terrible. It was conservative. They didn't trust their backup quarterback like SMU did with theirs. And it showed they just tried to run the ball. And Louisville, ugly, 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 ugly. It was a horrible game. And not much better than the Big Ten one, in my view, apart from the defences, which were really good. 
yeah. See, it it's weird. Like I I watched some of it, and like I suppose to keep it short and sweet, the best team in the ACC won. Like I say, I'm I'm happy that happened. The Florida State were a bit like a handgun, but the safety was still on. Dangerous, but they couldn't finish you off. Like I say, without John Travis, like I say, they had they watered it down. They went into self-preservation mode. We're going to go with a quarterback in that we don't necessarily trust. So we will run the ball and we'll rely on the defense. And it did. It worked. Like you say, it took all the pressure off the offense. I think their game plan was good to keep out the quarterback's hands. I think that was very wise in the end. Like I say, the FSU defense, like verse and that, they 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 just feasted. Like Louisville capitalized on a a poor ACC in general two minute title game. Plummer showed what Plummer is. He's not a guy for the big occasions. Was just poor on the day. Like I say, even when he had space, had time, like accuracy, an issue. Louisville have already got the new quarterback for next season. I must say, I'm just as unimpressed with Jack Plummer as I am the new guy. I don't know what it is they like about really average quarterbacks. So that should be fun to watch next year. But yeah, I'm glad there was no upset here. Like I say, Jordan, it would have been harsh on him. The Seminoles have been really good all year. Yeah, they were playing with one hand behind the back and the performance wasn't great, but it didn't need to be. They didn't think they needed a stellar performance to get to the playoffs. They were under the impression, let's just win, get the job done. But, well, it wasn't to be. But all in all, great year for the Seminoles. Like I say, if the ACC decides to get it back together anytime soon, it could be quite fun to watch. But I expect them to be the best team again next year too. But yeah, it's a shame how their season ended with the injuries, but they couldn't have done anything better. Like I said, they went undefeated, won a championship first time in nine years, and then it was just left to the look of the draw. So, yeah, it's a bittersweet season for the Seminoles, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll talk about the playoff implications in a minute for them, but. I was just underwhelmed. I expected Louisville are miles ahead of schedule in their build, like miles. This is still a really good season for them, but it just felt a bit of a letdown at the end that they were so ineffective. But Florida State's defense, we said they were going to carry them, and and then they did, really. They did what they needed to do. They'll get the number two back next week, so maybe the playbook will open up um, for the bowl game if they choose to, but yeah. It was just poor. I was just disappointed in it, Rolly, in the end. But well done, Florida State. We said they were going to win it at the start of the year just against Clemson, so they've surpassed that. And, you know, it's up to them now. They're losing a lot of players this year. A lot. This was their year because they bought back so many of the team that was looking better last year. So now they've got to refill the holes. But if they can do that, they're going to be a very, very, very dangerous team. And they could run the table again next year, especially because they don't play... NC State. Right, anyhow, we will move it on. There are some more to get through. And next, we will head to the Big 12. And we talked about this a lot last week. Oklahoma State and Texas. Ryan predicted the big upset in this one. Oklahoma State were going to walk out with the win here. But it went to form. Oklahoma State 21 
Texas 49, and this is how you win a playoff game. This is how you win a championship game to impress the playoff committee. This was probably Quinn Ewer's best ever performance as a Longhorn. They got up big and they got up early in this one, and this game effectively was over by halftime and a bit of a formality in the second half, but Quinn Ewer's 35 of 46... 452 yards and four touchdown throws in the air. Just one little pick to blemish the record a bit there. He had a couple of carries as well. But this Texas team dominated from start to finish. 690 yards of offense. They nearly broke the Magic 700 barrier. 464 through the air, 205 on the ground. You compare it to Oklahoma State. 281 yards, barely a third of what Texas managed. 250 in the air, 33 yards on the ground. Ollie Gordon, the second, one of the best running backs in the nation, had nothing. 13 carries, 34 yards, 2.6 yards per carry there. But Ryan, this is Texas's first win in the Big 12 since 2009, their last year before they move to the SEC, they go out with a bang, and they're not done this season yet, and unfortunately for OK State, they ran in, you know, Texas have struggled a bit in recent weeks, but we saw what they're like when they're running at 100% capacity. They can beat anybody in the country, and they made this look way too easy for a championship game. Yeah, I went with my heart on my head here. I knew it was a bad pick. I read somewhere that this is Texas now. This is a championship record. No team has ever been 35-0 up at halftime with 500 yards of offense in championship history. And you think about all the championships has been Texas now. Like you say, they set like you say, uh, points records, yards records, passing yards records for Big 12 championships. They, they, they broke everything. They, they shattered it. I was sad it was so one-sided, like you say. But then, like, I, I remember, like, I picked Tokyo State, and I remembered, like, who their quarterback is, and I'm like, why did I pick them? Like, he, was, he wasn't even that bad. His line from the day, he was 22 of 38. He had 250 yards, three touchdown passes, one pick. I think it's a case of they can't run the ball. And that's more disappointing, like, well... Okay, Their defence got absolutely rinsed. They've been like such a, It was a bad day on defence for OK State. They've, they've been like the Bermuda Triangle of teams this year, haven't they? Like, when you try and get into their psyche and predict what sort of a team they are, you just can't get a fix on them. I feel like that's what they've been this year. Yeah, really weird. Also weird that Mike Gundy won Big 12 Coach of the Year. Yeah. Like like two weeks ago, and then goes out here and lays an absolute egg and gets trounced. Like, I genuinely think that was just to spite Texas. Like, say, like that, that felt like a rigged vote. But yeah, Texas, I don't know what the future... Can Texas do well in the SEC? I don't know. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they went to the SEC and they were instant contenders. That would be such a long haunting to them. The more I think about it, like the more I think it's such an intriguing mix. 
they they are the by far the best team in the Big Twelve. So I can't I can't fault them for that. And yeah, like this this big big win, it got them the unlikeliest of meal tickets to to January football. Like say so. That's what Quinn Ewers is reported to be going back. Yeah, if he has another good, if he has a really good year next year, like is he a first round quarterback in twenty twenty five? He could be. Mm. I didn't think I'd be saying that last year. So yeah, next year for Texas is going to be absolutely fascinating, and I'm intrigued to see if they can cause the unholiest of upsets in January. Yeah, I mean, if he does come back when it's confirmed, that's going to set off the mother because they they are log jammed at quarterback. Like yeah. Arch Manning, he has to leave. Arch is he really going to wait behind Malik Murphy? That's it. And Quinn Ewers. Yeah, there, there's a pecking up. Malik Murphy is next in line. Like he played yeah, well. Three is Arch. Like yeah. when when Ewers got hurt, they never even thought about playing Manning. No, and Malik Murphy looked good. So it's like he's next in line for the throw. And they're not just going to give it to Arch, who's not taken a rep in college yet. So it's he's interesting. Got to go to the Buckeyes. Yeah. I mean, oh well, you'd love you'd love him to go to Ole Miss, wouldn't you? Really, re- re- restart the family heritage and all, but yeah, that's never going to happen. You have to sit behind Jackson Dart, one lame kid, loves that Jackson Dart. Oh, he's, he's got blackmail info on him, doesn't he? He's got to at this point. That's what it's with him. But Texas dominant, and yeah, I think Sarkeesian should have got coaching. You give Texas their first championship win in fourteen years. It's a big program. But I don't it, understand why you pick Coach of the Year before yeah. the championship games. That's oh. like it don't. That's ridiculous. They, they, I don't get why they do that. It's like Heisman candidates before like the playoffs and stuff like that. It's like because Duggan got snubbed last year for Williams, yeah. or someone got snubbed for Williams, and it's like you there's one of the players decision. still active in the playoffs. Yeah. They should have a rule if there's if there's Heisman finalists in the playoffs, you have to delay the vote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right now, I, for, for me right now, I actually think Penix Jr. is last. I have it as Jane Daniels, Bonix, Marvin Harrison Jr. I've ha- I have him bottom, and it's going to get picked before he gets to play. And that sucks. If he comes fourth in voting... And, and then he wins the night. Does really, if he wins the night, like, it, it's bizarre. I, I don't like it. No, I don't either. I think it's weird. And they, it's like they you're punished for making the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. And you've got to play more games, so you're under more scrutiny. Jaden Daniels, he's, he's not playing any more games. Like his season's done. His he's resume's got a shit there. Ball game too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he could, he could, he, he, he probably won't even play. Yeah. If I'm Jaden Daniels, he's probably he could go in the first round. I'm not playing a crap ball game for a nine and three LSU. No. So if you give me the Heisman, I'll run away with it like the Hamburglar. Yeah, exactly. You're playing it or you're not you're not Heisman eligible, something like that. Well, it's it can't be done this soon. Anyhow, uh let's move it on. Texas win the Big Twelve and they make the playoffs big for them. Um but there was some good news this week, right? You know, you voted with the heart on Oklahoma State and they let it down. But we both voted with the heart when it came to the Mac because very big underdog. The Miami of Ohio Red Hawks, who have suffered big, they lost Gabbert, their quarterback, through his own broken leg. I think it was a few weeks ago, and they have taken to life without him. Held off Ohio to get to the title game against the Toledo side, who, quite frankly, they ran the Mac this year. 
They are the most dominant team. They are the defending champions. The Red Hawks were massive underdogs in this game. And what happens? They, like SMU, pull out one of the performances of the week. Miami of Ohio, 23, Toledo, 14. And this is at Toledo. This is on the road. They go and beat one of the most dominant teams in the Power Five. And how do they do it? They do it. On the ground. The quarterback didn't have to do as much in this. Avion Smith is the guy there. He went 6 of 16 for 109 yards. No picks. No touchdowns. However, he did carry the ball 19 times for 109 yards. Rashad Amos, their running back, 15 carries, 74 yards. Two touchdowns for him on the day. On the flip side, Toledo could not run the football. They had 100 yards on the day, but that was it. They're only going at three yards per carry. Everything went onto the shoulders of Dequan Finn, their quarterback, their now traitorous quarterback, who's in the transfer portal. But they turned the ball over twice. It's a seven-point turnover margin in a game. They lost by nine points. And Miami of Ohio, their defense, has itself a day keeping Toledo really, really quiet. I mean... You know, just on the, the the surface of this ride, I think this was one where we sort of betted more in hope than expectation. Toledo were the juggernauts, Miami, Ohio, the plucky underdogs. But when you lose your quarterback the way they did, for them to win as many clutch games as they did meant that they had something about them. And you could tell that they could compete in this. And they made Toledo look average on their route to a championship. Yeah. It just shows that you can be the best team all year in the conference. But when it comes down to it, no one's going to gift you a title. You've still got to get the job done on your own. And I'm a huge fan of Daquan Finn. But yeah, Miami of Ohio, they, they showed up. They showed no respect to their opponent, which you shouldn't do. And they went out there and played a great game. And I remember like looking at my phone, like 22 seconds left in the game. And like it's like third and twenty-two until either I've got the ball, thinking like a touchdown. I think they'd win by like one. I thought those like the clutch moments where you've got to like not do what uh, Auburn did. Basically, you yeah. can't. They, a lot of teams like say can throw away games like the last play of the game, but no, they made a big stand right at the end. Like you say, backed up into their own red zone. Game is on the line. But that's when like the best teams do find ways to get the job done. And I was really impressed. And yeah, this was it was quite a big upset. Like I say the Rockets were favourites. A lot of them thought that they'd done so well all year that they, they, they really wouldn't cause them any problems in the final. But yeah, Finn like leaves, like I say, and leaves on a sour note, like I say, losing a title game despite all the talent. So yeah, that was a that was quite one for the books and like I said the Mac has been just wild all year like I said I got both picks wrong like I said in this championship game it's been very unpredictable and I think that's why the nature of it and people really do like it yeah I mean we both had the Red Hawks making the title game I think we just had them losing to different teams no I had but... higher Bobcats oh you had the... of course you did um, but oh no I had them there I had them losing I think to Eastern Michigan <laughs> but they were great. And this for them, it's their first MAC title since 2019. So it's only been four years. So they're not far removed from their last ball. They finish off 11 and 2. I mean, sans the bowl game it was the first 11 win season 
since 2003. So, I mean, Chuck Martin, big job he's done there. And especially when you lose, Brett Gabbert is one of the most talented quarterbacks in the MAC. And MAC teams are not known for having stellar backups and having depth there at that position. And for him to absorb that loss and still get them to an 11-win season and a championship is probably one of the coaching jobs of the year. Yeah. I really like Brett Gabbert. Like you say, he's been unfortunate of injuries, super talented, had a really good year last year. And I thought this year, like, he's going to deliver into the promised land. And like you say, he's, he's got the team in position there, but suffers a really bad injury. And it takes a lot of, like, belief in a backup, like, say, a coach to, like, to be able to put them in a position to win, to take pressure off them get the good run game and everything and it all just kind of clicked like you say for Chuck to get that 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 big 11 win season like say it's 20 years is a long time and he's he's delivered it and it was not expected at all so yeah showed some real levels of adversity they had to face in the last few weeks because they were with him for quite a while yeah absolutely um and for Toledo it's now hit the reset button, your star quarterback is gone, you've got to find the next guy, and the Mac is just, as we saw with Northern Illinois a couple of years back, you can go from first to worst in a year. That's just the kind of conference the Mac is, so they're going to have to bounce back from this. But the Red Hawks, tremendous year, well done. We really appreciate you for getting that one done for us. Right, there's two left. Um, first, going over to the Mountain West, and, and Ryan, there must be no one else in this world more peeved at this moment in time than Andy Avalos, the former head coach of the now once again Mountain West Kings Boise State to win their second title in four, three, four years now. They, they, they did it recently. They are back to Bing Kings after firing him three games ago. They've proceeded to win out the season, but they, of course, did come up against my darling UNLV Rebels, this is the first time they've been in the target in forever and a day. This is uncharted territory for them. It was at UNLV, um, but Boise State absolutely pummeled them in this one, 44 to 20. I watched this very closely. First half was an absolute banger of an affair. Most of the points came, to be fair. Taylor Green, he seems to have really, you know, we talked about him as being one of the best quarterbacks in the group of five at the start of the year. He has put it together at the end of the year. He started this all off. He ran in from eight yards out, rushing touchdown. UNLV hit back Vincent Davis Jr. He had a run for five yards, leveled it up. Then Ashton Gianti, the running back for Boise State. He was my player to watch on this team when we did our previews right at the beginning of the year. Not George Halani, it was this guy. Massive game in the championship game. But a five-yard touchdown run for him reestablishes Boise's lead. But then Talon makes a oh, it wasn't Talon. It was a um an interception return from UNLV, but it wasn't from Taylor Green. It was on a trick play. But um Fred Tompkins 47-yard defensive return touchdown for UNLV brings the scores back level again. This is only at the start of the second quarter. But then Boise really start to take hold. Taylor Green passed to Austin Bolt for 57 yards for a touchdown. Taylor Green then had a 70-yard rushing touchdown. Absolute barnstorming. He put on the burners, got through a gap in the middle of the O-line. He was gone. Could not catch him. Then they got a field goal. So they're 31-14 up. 
UNLV get a field goal back before half time. Uh, they get a field goal with their first drive of the third quarter, but that's it. It's done after that. Boise State just have their hand on their throat for this, and they just slowly bring them to heel. 622 yards of offense for Boise State, but 360 of it was on the ground. Ashton Gianti, 21 carries, 161 yards and a touchdown. George Halani had 20 carries for 84 yards. Taylor Green, 7 carries, 97 yards, 2 touchdowns. And UNLV, Jordan Maeva threw two picks, got hurt. Doug Brumfield comes in. His arm's cold from not playing this year. They can't really run the football. They just, it was, you said this, right last week, champions know how to win. One of these was a champion, one of these is a newcomer, and and it kind of showed in this. And Boise, they rule the mountains again. Yeah, weird one, because let's say for 50% of the season, Boise State weren't very good. And Taylor Green for half the year was poor. Multiple games where I think he'd thrown more interceptions or touchdowns. And at the time Andy Avalos being fired, I saw why. I actually wasn't that surprised. Like I said, I knew he had capable players, but it wasn't clicking. And behind the likes of Air Force, UNLV, Wyoming and that, like I said, they were lost. They were in no man's land. They only came back into relevance in the last month. Like I said, after they fired him, it kind of clicked. But yeah, when you look at these teams, you you looked at them and you thought, I can tell, if you'd have told me one of these teams has been in a title game before, and if I hadn't, you know which one you were picking. Like I say, the one that was off to the good start and then knew how to just keep hold of a lead and slowly bleed clock and just keep a team at arm's length. Like I say, it wasn't as dominant as the score would actually make you believe, but Boise State were, they were always in control. And it's not like they didn't struggle as well because I'm pretty sure like a week or two ago, their star wide receiver, I think he went in the pole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I don't think he even played in this game. I I think someone had like a thousand yards, a couple of touchdowns. I think he he left the team before this game. So, but yeah, Jante great, Halani Green had a great game despite some struggles this year. And then yeah, I really liked watching. Like I say, my ever he's been he's been a breath of fresh air this season. But unfortunately, like I say, one of his tougher to watch or one of his one of his worst performances did come in on the big day, the big day out. The lights were brightest. He, he kind of struggled, but it's a very young team. Like say, it's done so well to get here when no one thought it could. Hopefully they're able to get back. But yeah, Boise State, not great, not convincing for large parts of the season. Benefited from other teams slipping up. The fact that they even got here, like say, Air Force collapsing, really just opened the door for a but. You give them an inch, you take a mile, like I say, and they know they know what they're doing in championship games. So, yeah, the best team on the day definitely won. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, it's a shame. But like I say, UNLV, it's a first year head coach, young team. They got a lot of potential. No one thought they'd get there. Now they just the job is to persevere with this. It was started last year. They built on it this year. Can they carry on building it again and not slip? Because it's very easy to get dragged to the bottom of the Mountain West. And so many of the bottom teams are looking better this year. That mid-table's more crowded than it's ever been. So, well done, Boise. I mean, 
their running back room's crazy. You know, Halani, you know, we talked about him at the start of the year as being one of the best running backs in the group of five. He's the second running back there now, but maybe not, you know, not surprising for Boise. You know, they put guys in the NFL, Khalil Shakir's in there. Alexander Matheson was from there. Cedric Wilson was from there. I think we're going to see some more Boise offensive players get drafted very soon. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. They do really well at skill positions. Had yeah. some good defensive backs, had some good receivers. Quarterbacks have been iffy, but yeah, they they do really well. To it, it doesn't always translate to how well the team plays, but they usually have a couple of stars. Yeah. If someone told me that the Broncos next year would be terrible, I'd totally believe you. It I, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. No. I don't know what they're going to do at head coach either. I don't know. Seems they're just an interim in charge now. Yeah, yeah. Just they're going to want to go get a big name. See, uh, and there's no quarterback. Like, yeah, there's no quarterback. Like you say, does a does it go get? Uh, Dino Babers got sacked, didn't he? Dino Babers got Pretty sacked. Sure he was a he was a once Broncos head coach. Did missed out on Bronco Menhall. So yeah, like you say, he, we'll see if this is a turning, if this is them turning the corner, or if it was just a a surprise. Yeah, next year's all about the uh, the relevance of uh, the the emergence of Hawaii. Hopefully, I think. Harsin was the other one they mentioned, you know, the old Oban guy, Brian Harsin. Maybe they'll go in yeah, that direction. Yeah, I reckon he's else. coming back. I yeah. think there was strong odds like linking him back, but I don't know. With the way he left, I don't know. That could be a mistake. Hey, there's a lot of FCS head coaches coming up here now. Like, the FCS is getting poached for head coaches higher than I've ever known it before. New Mexico State, no, sorry, New Mexico just went down the FCS route. Holy Cross, that guy's meant to be coming up as well. Like, oh, did he get appointed? Or is it just a is it a predict the JMU? No, he got appointed oh. today. He's got a JMU, Bobby Chesney. Yeah, I'd so. say five Patriot League titles, seventy percent of all these games won. Yeah, across his career, like I say, absolutely just dominated. Yeah, there's some great. We'll we'll go through the head coach stuff next week when it's calmed down and we know who's where. But there's been some. There's a lot of FCS head coaches coming up. But yeah, Boise State, kings of the mountain for this year. Big season for them, given they've done it without a head coach. And to end it all off, there were two repeat champions this year. Obviously, Michigan held on to the Big Ten. And then we go to the Sun Belt, where the Troy Trojans, they held on to their title as well. I say held on. They they never took their hands off it. They didn't let App State anywhere near it. They're like, you're here. You can have a look at the prize, but we're not going to give it you. Now, App State, in fairness to them, started off well in this one. They It looked like it would be a semi-competitive game for a while. Troy went up two scores early. Kamani Vidal, I mean, he's one of the best running backs in college football this year. He had a seven-yard run, a 36-yard touchdown run. Uh, that was within two minutes of the second quarter. But App State, in fairness to them, they fought back, one just before the half, one just after Kanye Roberts ran the ball in twice from one and six yards. Troy go back in front. Gunnar Watson finds Chris Lewis from 51 yards. Touchdown 21-14. App State, they get a field goal. So it's 21-17. Kamani Vidal goes in again for Troy. Makes it 28-17. And, and there's the big and then the big one happens. Six seconds after that happens, Don Callis fumbles. It's a fumble return by Don Callis from 10 yards out. App State cough up the ball. It's uh, a strip sack touchdown 
defensive touchdown. It gets up to 18 points and App State just can't fight back for it. They do get a touchdown with five minutes to go. Eli Wilson runs it in, but Kamani Vidal manages to find time for two more touchdown runs from six and from 49 yards and maybe one of the greatest running back performances in a championship game in some time. Kamani Vidal went 26 carries, 233 yards, which is 8.9 yards per carry, and five touchdowns. Got a Watson through for one. He was 16 or 24, through for a touchdown. App State were just never able. They just kept getting behind the sticks too many times. And Troy's defense, Ryan, we know what it does. It wins championships. This this was Troy football in a nutshell. They run the football down your throat and then they stop you from making plays on offense. And for two years in a row, John Sumrall has got that machine working perfectly. Yep. It was on brand for Troy. Their defense, it bends, it doesn't break, and it's great in the red zone. And that's what it's been known for the last two or three years. And yeah. Vidal, single-handedly, he blew Appstate out of the water. They couldn't handle him. Every time he touched the ball, you felt like it could be magic, like he could be gone. Like I say, he was breaking tackles. Guys were just hanging off him, hanging on for dear life to try and stop him. And in the end, yeah, it was just insurmountable. Appstate just couldn't catch up. After, I'd like, say, the, the defensive turnover, it was game over. They were never going to be able to bridge that gap again. It was just uh, it was just too far for them. But yeah, Troy just prove again that defense does win championships as long as you keep it giving it ticking over. And then yeah, having a running back that's capable of the the special the home run ability, I'd say it just it just demoralizes App State, and it just it was just too much from the in the end. Yeah, absolutely, and Troy. Going to get a real good uh, bowl game against Duke in the Birmingham Bowl. So that's going to be another stage. But Kamani Vidal finished second in the nation in rushing yards this year. 1,582 yards for him in what has been an absolutely terrific season. And Troy, nothing stopping them from 3 in next year, is there? Right? They've done it with Gunnar Watson, who's been a serviceable quarterback. They don't need a good one. With that defense, how they refresh it, and with the running back and the offensive line, it's the Sun Belt is there. Someone's going to have to claw the Sun Belt out of their cold, dead hands if they want to get a hold of it. Yeah, like I say, they've not been the best team in this. Well, they have and they haven't, but like I say, they've taken a big. I think they've uh, handled the situation of the teams that have played really well that are not eligible. Like I said, they've they've taken advantage of that. Like I said, they've they've won and they've beaten who they've had to. Next year, let's see. We'll see a real test of their title credentials with Jacksonville State and with JMU. If they can hold off one of those in title game, then yeah, it's it could be a dynasty. It could be five six titles in ten years. It could be four or five in a row. So next year we're going to see the very best of the Sun Belt. I think. It's oh, going yeah. to be. I think. I think next year, my prediction is the Sun Belt will send the team to the New Year Six Bowl, not the AAC, not Mountain West, the Sun Belt, and I don't think they've ever done that. 
No, I, I, I'm fully on board with you there. I, I think they should be able to do that for sure. Um, it's it, it's a very deep division. And if the likes of South Alabama get better, if Marshall recover where they were from, then you're going to have a lot of big competitors for that. Coastal will always be good. App State have been good this year. So it's going to be a competitive conference. Absolutely. But Troy, well done. Double winners for them going for the three-peat in 2025. And when everything is said and done, when all the smoke has settled, what this means is the playoffs were then decided the day after all this went off. And boy, oh boy, did they produce a lot of furore in their aftermath. So it ended up being Michigan. The Wolverines were ranked number one. Washington, undefeated Pac-12 champions, ranked number two. Texas, the one-loss Big 12 champions, just the loss to Oklahoma, ranked up at three. And then most controversial of all, Alabama, the one-loss SEC team, the loss bin to Texas during the season, they got put in at number four at the expense of Florida State, who were an unbeaten Power 5 champion. The first ever time it has happened that a Power 5 champion has been unbeaten and missed the playoffs. And when we talked about the ramifications last week, right, there were eight teams who could potentially have gotten the playoffs here. And we said, what happens if Georgia lose and Alabama win and it's a close one? Well, Georgia got booted all the way down to six. So they were never in contention for this if they were going to lose. But Bama, they felt like they had the edge on Florida State going into number four. It's it's very, yeah. Did they make the right decision? Do you agree with it? I still stand by it, yeah. I predicted it, I picked it, and it was my four, and I'm, I'm happy with it. But on the flip side, I can see why everyone that, likes Florida State, is upset and feels aggrieved by it. Like people like bring up like the rule books and like what the committee looks at and whether or not if it's true they do take player availability and account into the actual consideration. Did 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 they not put them there just because Trod and Travis couldn't play? If that's the case and that's wrong, I, I that's not something I can really get behind. Like say they did go into LSU and they beat LSU. They, they slapped them about. So they had their profile win. Texas, like you say, beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa. They had their profile win. So is it just SEC bias that got Bama at four? Probably, yeah. You can, you, you can say that if, SEC, if they weren't in the SEC, Bama, and let's say they played in... Uh, like say the, the Big Ten, would Florida State have made it in above them? They mattered, and yeah. I think the question for me here is if Jordan Travis is fully healthy and they, they win out like they have done, are they telling us that they would have left Bama out of the playoffs? Because that is essentially what they're saying to us, isn't it? If he doesn't get hurt, they would leave Bama out the playoffs and Florida State would probably be third seed and Texas would be fourth seed. I don't know about you, but I don't buy that for one second. See, but it has to be John Travis, like, he's fully fit, and then he has to, like, destroy Louisville. Yeah. If he, if, if he does that, then I think if that happens, they, they're in, but I think they're only the fourth seed. I still think they're behind Texas. But 
yeah, they're, they're trying to lead us to believe that that's why we picked Bama. Yeah. They're, they're saying that they would have left them out if Travis was healthy. And I don't buy that. I, I get where the committee is coming from. So for me, the nail in the coffin for Florida State was that championship game. Because you have just watched Texas absolutely thwomp Oklahoma State, who are only ranked a couple of positions lower than Louisville. They dropped 50 on them. That is a dominating performance in the championship game. That is big on your resume, and you look great. Florida State come in, and they can barely put away a Louisville team that scores six. It's like, it's almost justifying their position, isn't it? It's like, well, that was just not a good game of football. Like, take away everything great Florida State's defense did, and Lawrence Torrefilly did. Outside of that, they did nothing really good at all. They didn't trust their quarterback. They didn't, they, they schemed negatively. I, I felt like that was the nail in their coffin. I don't know about you, but it, it won't have helped. No, the performance definitely didn't help. Just winning and just going undefeated. If they put in a big performance and they spank Louisville, then yeah, it probably would have made the committee's decision a lot more difficult. And it seems a bit hypocritical, does it not? That they say, you know, the same games don't matter in this case because they're unbeaten, but they've ranked Texas over Alabama because Texas beat them. So games do matter to the committee, just just not in this case. It seems like a hypocritical stance to me. Yeah, because technically if Alabama would have beaten Texas, mm -hmm. would they put them the other way around? Because in that case, then games would have mattered. Yeah, so it's it can't be one rule for one and one rule for another. So, yeah, they either matter or they don't, and it's your final record, Yeah, uh, which, which is it. Yeah, you can't say games matter to Texas and Alabama, but they don't to Florida State. Like you, you just can't do it. You've got to be consistent in your reasoning. If you're ranking Texas above Bama, it's because you value that win. You can't then say an unbeaten season is unvalu is not valuable. I don't agree with it. I think you know they should have been given the opportunity to do so. However, having said that, we have to put this to one side. I feel sorry for Florida State. I do, but what this leaves us with is the Rose Bowl, which is going to be Michigan versus Alabama. And then we've got the Sugar Bowl, which is going to be Washington, Texas. And again, put all the stuff with Florida State for one side. I don't know about you, but when I think about these fixtures, a smile comes to my face. I think they're going to be a cracking set of semifinals. I think the Sugar Bowl will be by far the best game. I think those two. I think Washington, Texas will put on a show and it won't include much defence. I reckon it's going to be an all-out slugfest of juggernaut. Whereas I reckon Michigan will do their best to use their run game and their defense to try slow down Alabama and make life difficult for them, generate turnovers. I think that will be a more calculated game, more balanced, more about special teams and defense. Like I say, I think that one will, could be quite interested. That would be a bit of a chess match, where the other one will be just a straight up like conquer match like I said the last team on the string still wins so you're going to get a very a big contrast of styles for me how they play them so we'll talk about the games closer to the time we'll preview them close time but initial thoughts who gets to the natty and who wins it like initially when you see those games who who, who calls to you my natty on paper is Bama v Texas I just don't see 
now Nick Saban's got there, I just don't see them being stopped. See, I, I don't know if you agree, but I think this game is much bigger for Michigan than it is for Alabama. For me, this is about Michigan. If they want to create a legacy, like they've they've ran the Big Ten three times, but if you, you lose to Georgia year one, which is understandable, that's one of the best teams of all time, but then you screw up against TCU in year two, if you can't beat the dynasty... Have they really achieved anything these last three years? I feel like a loss to Bama would be massive because it shows that they've not actually achieved that much outside of winning a week Big Ten. They've got to go a step further than last year, like I say. They have got they have got to avenge that TCU loss. Mm-hmm. And they've got to do it in the hardest way possible by being Alabama. But yeah, if this team wants to tell me that it's learned from lessons from last year. It's got better, and it's closer to being national champion, not further away than last year. You've got to win. Yeah. Like I say, and for Jim Harbaugh, as well, like I say, he's been out of action now for, let's say, a couple of weeks. Like I said, will this be his first game back in charge? Yeah, yeah. It will be, yeah. So for me as well, like I say, if they're getting Harbaugh back, I need to see that he has an effect and they play much better than his interim manager and the coaching staff. That, but I've got to see that Harbaugh has an effect on them. Because now I've seen them play in the same season with him and without him, I want to see them play better. Because they didn't play great against Iowa, but they didn't need to. But this yeah. is a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. If Jim wants to be back in the NFL, which we're led to believe, this is his game to go do it. You go out there and you trounce the Crimson Tide, and the NFL teams will be lining up with blank checkbooks to yeah. buy him out. Yeah, I think if he wins a natty, he's gone. I think he'd feel like his job was done. But for me, this is... Also as well, people keep telling me J.J. McCarthy is the truth. He's the thing. Go and prove it. We're going to go find out. Yeah, go out and prove it. The Big Ten, I don't give a shit about the Big Ten. J.J. McCarthy in the Big Ten, don't impress me. Does not interest me. Like I say, because Big Ten, it's ass. If J.J. McCarthy is an NFL quarterback... Go out and show him against Alabama, against NFL defenders. Yeah, the, the, and the then be- that, then I will change my mind. The best NF, the best defensive lines in the Big Ten don't belong to the best teams. Like you know, Penn State have got some good ones on there, but Ohio State, it's not a good D line. Like you, you're going to have to go down to like your Iowas and your Illinois and teams like that where you find your best defenders. And you can deal with them one-on-one basis. This, you're coming up against Dallas Turner. You are coming up against some of the best edges and defensive tackles in the country on a team that can back them up with a linebacking core and a secondary that can back them up. Like, you've got to perform in this because they are just a much different level of opposition. And if you want to show me you're a serious team in college football, you've got to go and beat the dynasty. If you can't beat the dynasty, then... You know, it, you're just you're just winning a bad conference, and that's it. And like I said, JJ's got to prove himself. They've got to prove they can take this next step forward. I don't know if they can. My initial impact would be to say that it will be Bama because of the experience they've had. They're red hot. I don't know. I fancy Washington though. I would just very early put on a Bama Washington natty, and I think mm, maybe if it goes into a shootout, Washington can win, but. I think Bama are the favourites at the moment. Right, that is everything in terms of uh, Championship Week, and that is it. 
the season is over. All that is left now is bowl season, which will be starting on next week. So the games start a week on Friday, and then it is the playoffs, which happen at the beginning of January. So we'll have to wait a little until we see how this season ends up. So we will move it on, and we're going to finish off today. We are going to do our end-of-season mock drafts for the Detroit Lions Um so to say we do the half seasons and we do the final seasons to see what we're thinking. But of course, a lot more stuff is going to happen between now and draft season. But this is just sort of a barometer we use before we start doing our really serious ones in February, March, April time. And to be honest, not a lot has changed in terms of positioning since when we did this. When we started, the Lions were picking 25th when we last did this at the start of the season. They're picking 28th. Now, so we can just go back through as we did before. Round one, there's a round one pick, a round two pick, which will be about 63 now. Two picks in round three. Then you've got round six, and you've got two in round seven. And you know what? I've barely changed mine for the first time in living memory. Usually, these things change a lot as the season goes I've on. I've changed every player. And I didn't even look at my old draft. I have not taken oh, any really? the same place. I've taken the same. <laughs> You've taken the same I've positions. Taken, apart from one, yeah, but I've also yeah, I've taken all different players. I, I even forgot we did a half season. <laughs> well, you know, it does mean something to us. But yeah, we we we've been going on through this. So let 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 us dig down into this. Let us go through our our final season mocks for now. So we're starting off in round one. We're in the twenties. We're in the late twenties. But you know, we suspend our disbelief a little bit. Who do you have the Lions picking in the first round of the twenty twenty four draft, right? So yeah, I've uh, I this is the hardest mock draft I've ever had to do. Because, like I say, we're in a good position, but we're also in positions of it's an unknown position. But when you get to like past pick 20, it's a total gamble. So, originally, I had Cooper Dijon. Now, I think he's gone. But uh, for me, I've gone Braylon Trice. So, I've gone defensive end Washington. Because, for me, I've seen a glaring need opposite in Hutchinson. And we're trying lots of bodies, and it's not happening. And... I love Dallas Turner and I love the explosiveness and like the big playability. But I also look at him at 245 pounds, 240, and I need, he's got to put weight on if he's going to be able to play against the run. Braylon Trice has got that ability, but 6'4, he's like 270. He's got the frame I want and he's also got the big player potential. Like I said, he can be stout in the wrong game, but the amount of pressure he can generate doesn't always lead to sacks. His sack numbers are good. But he's a consistent pressure guy, a bit like Aiden. And that's what I want the other side. I want someone that can pretty much never leave the field if you don't have to. Like, say, I, he can finish when he has to, but he's also just a brute guy that can stand up a tackle and help, can come around the outside. So he can disrupt in many ways. So, yeah, I've got Trice going in round one. Nice. Like the pit there. So Ryan's going edge to start this off. I am going cornerback because I believe cornerback is a is a glaring need on this Lions team, especially poor Jerry. I love him to death, but he, he needs to be in the depth rotation, not as a starter. And you know what? I'm going to double down on this pick because still I don't see anyone picking him up here at this point. But I'm taking Chris Abrams' drain 
He is the cornerback from Missouri. I had him there at round one in my first one. I'm having him back there on my second one. Missouri did not drop off this year. They had a great season under Eli Drinkwitz, got themselves a really good bowl game where they're going to smack around Ohio State. And he has been a massive part of this team. So on the year... Um, 45 tackles, four assisted. He's only missed four. His missed tackle rate is 7%. He is very good with his technique. In the run game, he's had 16 stops there. Needs to be a little bit of work done in run game in terms of coming up, getting some of the bigger guys off tackling there. But he's he's got big upside here. In terms of coverage, he gave up 25 receptions on 50 targets so only gave up catches on half the passes thrown his way four interceptions on the season 10 pass breakups as well he's a guy who's been working his way in three years starter for this team now he's 511 he's 178 maybe stick on a few pounds but i've got no real big concerns about him other than that, does special teams work that we need him to? Works on the kick return team, the kick coverage team, works all facets of it, really. He's got 80 snaps for them this year, a little less than he's done in previous years, but he's a fully-fledged starter at this point, so you get everything you need to with him. But in terms of a great coverage corner, Chris Abrams' drain is the guy, and he will be in first-round contention. I am bookmarking this now. He will move up boards, and people will love him. And hopefully he plays in the bowl game and gets to show it off against some of the best receivers in the country. Right, move it on into round two now, Ryan. Who do you have? I'm I'm double dipping. I'm going back to defensive line, but I'm going interior. I'm going with Tivondre Sweat, the defensive tackle from Texas. I believe has just won the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I said, he... I want to take some pressure off Aline McNeil and I want to give him a partner if we're going to persist with this four-man front and sweat at like, is it like 300 pounds by six foot four. He's got a good stout build, but he's more athletic than I give him credit for. Like I say, he's faster off the snaps than he is for a lot of bigger, heavier guys. He generates, he gets sacks. He's a finisher. Like I say, he's someone that he knows how to finish his tee and Good in run support when he needs to be, but that's not where I want him. I said I will let Lee McNeil do the dirty work as a nose tackle, and I will give this guy, like say, a defensive tackle that can generate pressure from inside to out. And if one of the outside guys, like you say, is uh, is struggling or can just hold that guy up, I trust this guy to get in and get the job done. Like I said, I see, I see the lines right now. Like you say, yeah. Still like a top five sides in pressures, but it's not the tackles for loss and the sacks out there. They're not marrying up. So it's a position of, of need for me. And it's another weapon where if we're going to, if Aaron Glenn's going to be here again next year, who knows, then I, I'll go in on him. I'll give him the weapons. And if he's not the guy, it will prove it when I give him all this extra talent. But yeah, uh, I'll, I'll go again on the D line because for me, we're going to be ripping this up and starting again this year. We're going to be tearing a lot of D-line down, so I think we're going to have to draft another body in. Yeah, yeah, fully agreed there. Um, so, moving on to round two for myself, um, I'm sticking with another guy who I've had on before. I say there's a few of them here, but I'm moving him up because he's moving 
up the charts. And there is no one I want more in this draft, maybe except Jazane Newton, but we're probably not going to get him. And of course, I'm talking about Christian Haynes. He's the offensive guard from UConn. He is the right guard for them. And the man has just had a sensational season. So overall, he's got 3,318 snaps at right guard in college. He's given up one sack in the last two seasons. He's given up three sacks in the last three. The guy has gotten better year upon year with his pass blocking on a line which has been suspect. This has not been a good UConn team this year. I think they went 2-9 and nine in the end. Guy's graded 85 on the season. The pass blocking is 88. He had one little off day against James Madison where he gave up a pressure. But he's given up one sack and six quarterback hurries this year. This is it. He moves interior defensive linemen around. He can do it one on one. He doesn't need a he doesn't need a chip from the center or the tackle. One on one, he's a match for anybody. He can do the double team blocking well. Very athletic. Gets up to the second level quick in the run game. His run blocking is really good. And the Lions just have a glaring need on the offensive line in the interior going forward. I'm just not, I love Glasgow, uh, but we need to prepare for the future. We need a new guy in there. And I want a specialist guard who will do his job. We did it with Jonah. He was a specialist guard in college for Rutgers and Ohio State. Been one of the best players on this team, despite the injuries as of late. Christian Haynes is going to be the guy from UConn, and I want us to get him. He's just going to carry on going up boards as well. So maybe 60, roughly where we'll be at second pick. Might have to go get him, but I will 100% go and get him. Honestly, one of the players I love most in this draft. So Christian Haynes is still on my mop board. He is never coming off my mop board, unless it turns out that he kicked a puppy or something. But short of that, he's on there. He's my guy. Uh, move it into round three, Ryan. Uh, there's two here, but who's your first guy in round three? First count, right. Yeah, I'm going back with you. We need to address outside corner. I am going with the the behemoth. I'm going with TJ Tampa, the cornerback from Iowa State. I've kind of fallen for the kid. He has the thing we don't have on the outside, size. 6'2", 200 pounds. He's already got the NFL frame. This year, two interceptions, 50 tackles, and a further seven passes defended. He's been on an island for the Cyclones. He's been their, I think he's been their best defender. He's only 21. He's had a great year this year. Like I say, he can be in man, can be in coverage, solid tackle on the outside, good form, uses that size and that weight well. So I, I trust him in all aspects. And yeah, like I say, I like Jerry, but I can't watch teams to continue to go pick on him. Like I say, if we're going to line him up against the, the DK Metcalfs, the Christian Watsons, the AJ Browns, the bigger, stronger guys, I'm going to draft and go out there. I'm going to get a big, strong guy that can hold his own on the outside and generate turnovers. I mean, it's a young man. We've not seen the best of him just yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we're thinking along similar lines here. Uh, my first one in three, this is another guy I've upgraded. Um, I had him at round, I had him as my second pick in round three, which is roughly 91. I've upgraded him to 67. Um, the Lions do need a wide receiver next year. We need an outside wide receiver next year, a guy who's going to be able to go out there, do the dirty work, but also provide on the line for blocking purposes that we know the Lions 
uh, you know, covet and need. And I just have watched this guy all season. I love him more and more every time I watch him. And he is everything that this Detroit Lions team represents. That is Tory Horton. He is the outside wide receiver from Colorado State. He's 6'2", 190 pounds, has just recorded his second successful 1,000-yard season. So he had 1,131 yards and eight touchdowns through the air in 2022. 1,144 yards, eight touchdowns again this season. And he's had some absolutely tremendous performances. But you play him about three quarters on the outside. He plays a little in the slot. He does everything that you need him to. So he's had four years in college, two at Nevada, two at Colorado State. But as they play him on the outside, his contested catchability is great. As they say, 6'2", 190 pounds. He's got the frame. He's got the ability out there. Does all the flashy plays. But Jay Norvell does not accept scrubs on his team. And although I've you know, said a lot about him in the past in terms of how he left Nevada, etc. If you want to play for him, and more importantly, if you want to play in the Mountain West, You've got to do the dirty work well. He grades 88 in his blocking, pass blocking, 78 in run blocking. This guy will get deep down and dirty and do the work he needs to. And then the match you need to see here is when they had the rivalry game against Colorado. He actually threw for a touchdown in that game. He has usability as a quarterback. But you can play him inside, you can play him outside, you can play him as a deep threat, you can play him across the field. He does literally just about everything for you. And if that's not enough, he does all facets of special teams as well. He's a kick returner, he's a punt returner, he's played plenty of special teams coverages over the last couple of years, mainly does punt returns. He's on the punt return team, um, but gives you special teams ability, return ability on the outside, on the inside, everything you need with this guy. I'm going to do a more in-depth video review of him going forward. But me and Rye, we love the Mountain West. Mountain West creates tough players who do what they need to to survive and thrive. Tory Horton's the guy. And like Puka Nasua last year, who I banged the drum for till the end, look how well he's doing in the NFL right now. Wasn't a household name. Not everyone was going after him, but he had the right attitude. He had the right skill set. More importantly, he does everything you want. This is this year's Pukunasua for me. Tory Horton, you go be a lion, I hope. Um, Ryan, your second pick in the third round. So for me, second pick in the third round, I've dropped him down my board, actually. I don't know whether he's going to have dropped as the season has gone on, but still want to keep him. So my, my first four picks are the same, just not in the order that I've used them. But I'm actually going to Michigan here and I'm going back for their defensive tackle Chris Jenkins uh, because I've been very impressed with him all season the performances especially in the title game the Ohio State game were really good but this guy is really good against the run one of the best run stuffing defensive tackles coming up in this draft not so much in the pressure column just yet he's had a couple of sacks on the year um, but in terms of what he will bring to the interior of our line, I like Aleem as the option that goes out and gets the sacks and gets all the sort of pressure on the inside. I want a guy in there who I can trust to be a high-level run defender with him, who has got the upside to go and do things against the quarterback. But he is 
well-sized, 6'3", 305 pounds, very stout as a tackle. Good history when it comes to not being injured, to being available. Um, this Michigan D-line's just been suffocating this year to so many teams, and it all starts with him at the anchor in the middle. So I'm taking Chris Jenkins, and I'm going to sort my D-line. So at this point, I've got two on defense, two on offense. I filled what I feel are four big holes on this team. And the same guys. I just really like these guys and I want to keep them in there. So, yeah. Um, Chris Jenkins, defensive tackle. He's my second pick in the third round for the Lions. Um, got you back. Now, Rai, who's who's your other guy in the third round? Who's your second guy? So, I thought about the same lines as you in the previous pick. I'm going with an offensive guard. I'm taking Tate Ratledge. The uh the long term starter from uh, the Georgia Bulldogs, like I say, six foot six and about three hundred three hundred ten pounds. He's got the size that we like for the offensive line. He's very good in pass blocking. Run blocking needs work, but uh, he's a guy that is kind of like came in at the program and kind of hit the ground running. Like you say, he came in as a freshman back in twenty twenty. He saw action straight away. Like say, and then like he's kind of like just progressed each year to becoming part of like a key person going down the line. Like say, as a junior, uh, featured in twelve games, so he played up in entire of the season. Like say, and at right guard in twenty twenty as a junior, he gave up no sacks playing right guard position, which for me is a position that we need. Like say, he's someone that finishes his blocks when he gets hands on people. He makes sure he either puts them down. Or he keeps hold of them till the player's whistled dead or it's over. So he's got good hand placement. He's got good hand size. He's got a strong pop at the line of scrimmage. He's well built. He's a well put together guy. Like I say, with Graham being here. Like I say, and like I say, we've got Corey as well. We've got Sawsdill. So uh, we need offensive line reinforcements because we've seen that we've had to really pull into the bag of tricks this year. But for a, a rookie, I feel like you could trust him to take some snaps. He's got the size that you look for, the build you look for, and he's got good, strong hands. And in pass pro, when you're not asking him to do too much, not get to the second level just yet, I feel like he's a very solid option as a a, a long term starter. I feel like as a project goes, he's probably got a he's probably more developed and a, a bit further on than some of the later round guys. In the draft going forward. Right, let's move it on down. I'll come straight back to you and we'll get back in our regular order again. So we have to make a big drop now from round three. We're going to round six. We've got three picks later on. Um, who who are you picking on day three at the moment? Who's taking your fancy towards the end of the draft? So round five, uh, this pick won't surprise anyone. I'm going with wide receiver. I'm going with a former Sun Devil, currently a Gator. I'm going with Ricky Pearsall that declared last week. Like it's a... As uh, it was like a really part, a key part for Jane Daniels and like other quarterbacks in Arizona State. Like I say, six one, a buck ninety. He's a bit light, bit short, but like I say, he's got sticky hands. Like I say, he catches a lot of things that come his way. He had two or three pretty mediocre years in Tempe by his own standards, but quarterback player, offensive player calling didn't do it. But came to Florida this year. Graham Mertz, and he's he's been a pretty standout guy. Like, say, he made that in ridiculous one-handed catch that went viral across the internet. That kind of just sums up what he can do. Like, say, he's uh, in his time, like, throughout four years in college, so he's 
he's been big in the run game this year as well. Like you say, like he's got like 120 rushing yards. He's returned. He's also completed two passes, I believe, as well. So he can throw. He can run. I say it won't surprise me if he could kick, but he can catch. Like say he's had a great year. Like say he's an all-round weapon. Like say in special teams, incredibly hard worker, really likable guy that's playing two different offenses, found his way in the SEC. Someone that I really like and fondness of, but he has been growing. He's gone up boards this year. A lot of like I said, the move to Florida, I questioned it at the time because of the quarterback situation, but he turned out to be Mertz's pretty much his best weapon. Like saying he had a he had a pretty good year by his own standards. The average of catch was really good and he put himself on the national radar. So I think as a a middle round day third option. For us that we don't need starters, not yet anyway, because we can still keep we've got Jameson, we've got like say I'm on Rab, but uh Khalif, Josh Reynolds and that, they will move on in a year or two. And I would like someone grained in. Like I say, he's not gonna be an outside guy, but he's got a good root tree. But he can play all facets of the game. Like I say, he can run the ball, he can throw, he can catch, he can do a bit of everything. Like I say, so I feel like he's he's gonna be someone that offers a bit of versatility. And he will definitely have his name called, like I say, I think on day three. And yeah, he's a good guy, he's moldable, he's teachable. Yeah, I, it's quite funny, actually. I've gone in the same direction as you. I'm looking for versatility on the offense here at this point. And you know, people go, well, there's not many defensive picks in here, but I'm addressing that in free agency. I'm spending money on vets this year for the defense. But, you know, at this point, last time I penciled in Ty Key Smith, the safety from Georgia at this point, ain't no way he's going day three no more. Guy's a solid day two pick. He's going to go fairly high, so... Kind of got to take this into consideration, but I'm actually going to go running back at this point with the first of mine here. People might go, what? You've got Monty. You've got Jameer. We do, but we need depth behind them going forward. You've always got to have the next guy ready. And I've watched a bit more of him recently and I've grown more enamored, but his father was a very big deal in the NFL. And he's going to be a very big deal in the NFL soon because he's riding up boards. But I'm actually going to pick Frank Gore Jr. from Southern Miss. And I think that's going to be a good pick at this point in time. So he has spent four years in college, 4,000 yards for the Golden Eagles, 26 touchdowns. But it's not just his work as a running back. It's his offensive versatility. The guy has played quarterback for the Eagles. He has seven touchdown passes in his career. The receiving ability has gone up by year. He had 224 yards, three touchdowns this year. His best output as a receiver. He's got 700 yards and four scores altogether in that game. The guy blocks well. He runs hard. He plays quarterback. He gives you a lot of interesting variations you can put into an offensive system. You know, and if one of Jameer or Monty goes down for a little bit of time, this is a guy you will bring in as a two and he'll do everything you want and more. And let's say you can bring him in wildcat, get him throwing passes, really throw teams off. And just the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know what? We draft guys like this who have such scheme versatility. That's why the Detroit Lions offense is so great. And I want to keep that going. So yeah, I'm going to pick Frank Gore Jr. from the Southern Miss Eagles there for mine. Um, who have you got next, right? So moving towards round seven territory. So in the round six, I'm going back 
to the offensive line. I've got Tyler Guyton. I've got the large standout uh, offensive tackle from the Oakland Sumers. So, like me in tackle depth, like I said, I think I'm also looking to the future as well. Like I say, that we've been lucky that Sewell and Decker have been pretty formidable for the last few years, but Decker won't be around forever. Like I say, like, at some point, it's going to be like an injury is going to catch up with him or his play will, it will kind of just slowly start to decline, not anytime soon, but like I say, we do like to be someone that carries seven, eight tackles because we do have jumbo sets and we add extra tackles in. So, and we've seen the fragility of the offensive line this year. So I've brought in this guy. Like I say, he's had a really good season. Like I say, uh, mainly tackle, but like I say, he's got the size. He's also quite lean and flexible. So he gets to the second level. Like I say, because he's quite a tall, thin, offensive tackle. So he's got a good frame. He's got some good power behind that. Like I say, he's, uh, he's experienced. He's uh, been around. Like I say, I believe he was at, currently at. He was originally at TCU, but then, like I say, made the transfer over. Uh, projected to run a pretty good 40. Like I say, in the top like 80 percentile, some think he could run around five seconds. For someone at six foot seven, like 315 pounds, if he runs just after five seconds, I'll be very impressed. That will tell me he is an incredibly long, tall man, but he's a very slender and surprising athlete and will do well at the next level. So for me, I like the frame. I like the things you've got that you can't teach. And I, I find that, that that's what intrigues me about him. Like I say, it's uh, in action eight games, uh, like 300 snaps. He's given up just two hurry, uh, two hurries, no sacks, uh, just one sack playing right tackle this year for Oklahoma. So he's held the job down pretty well. Bearing in mind, this is his first season as a Sooner. Spent the last couple as a Horn Frog. So his real chance to start and, like say, at a big school. And uh, last year as a sophomore, he didn't have any sacks either. So two schools, no sacks, two different schemes, big, big man. Athletic, like I say, just a lot to work with, like I say. And if you keep him on the roster, the practice squad for a couple of years, he could come good. You never know. He's got everything that I kind of need, and I think that uh, Hank Fraley will love. You could kind of mould this kid. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. Offensive line definitely in need for us. Um, so round seven for me, I did have Sean Martin, the edge from West Virginia. A sort of a project edge, but he's had a very meh end to the year. Not been one of West Virginia's best players. I've not got him in there anymore. Again, I'm actually going offense here, and I'm going to give, if he declares, at this point we don't know if they're all going to declare, but I am very intrigued, and because he suffered a Liss Frank injury, which ended his season pretty early, he's falling down draft boards because of the medical which is going to be an issue for some, but you're picking late on in the draft, so you pick your poison at this point. But if he's there, I'm taking a Ronde Gadsden the second. He's the tight end slash wide receiver hybrid out of Syracuse. All of the mock draft simulators have him have him here. I can't believe he'd be at this position in a draft, but he'd be one of the biggest steals going. The man is a mismatch nightmare for teams. He is six foot five. And 223 pounds, I mean, the size there alone is a big factor. But 
Syracuse play him at tight end. They play him in the slot. They even play him at outside receiver. But his 2022 year was huge. So he had 966 yards and six touchdowns. It was his big breakout year. Coming into this year, people thought he'd be one of the tight end, top tight end options in the country or a receiving one if he played a receiver. He only ended up playing two games, got hurt. But I've seen more than enough from this guy on tape. He ripped us, us being NC State, a new one last year. He had 160 yards and two touchdowns. I've seen him up close and personal. He blocks like a champion because, again, in that Syracuse system, you have to. You have a run-first quarterback and you have a pretty heavy dose of run game. So you've got to be able to do the dirty work well in terms of blocking, whether it be for the running back, on screens. He does it great. Grades at nearly 90 in that regard. Run blocking is pretty good as well. He's asked to pass block a lot. So he'll he'll take on edge rushes and he will pass block. He will do what he needs to with the best of them. If he's going to be there, this is another scheme versatile weapon you will put in the system. You don't know whether he's going to drop into pass protection. You don't know whether he's going to chip off the edge and become a receiver. Don't know whether you're going to motion him out wide. Yeah, it's just the possibilities are endless. And I love little gadget guys like this. And I think giving him to our offense and just be a little bit of a cheat coach, you can do so much there. You put Gore and Gadsden in then. Yeah, I love it. So, Randy Gadsden will be my pick there. Ryan, who are you finishing off your mock with? So, in my first mock, I took a kicker. And this time, I'm taking a kicker, but I'm taking someone else. I'm taking Will Reichard. I'm taking the NCAA's newest all-time highest point scorer. Like I said, the senior is now got 539 points across the five seasons. Like I said, that's untouched. That's the outright leader. He's only missed two points in extra points in the career. And for the last three straight, last four straight years, he has got a longest kick over 50 yards. For me right now, I look at the team, not now, but next season. If we're serious about trying to make a Super Bowl and an NFC Championship, I need a kicker Well, he steps on the field. And I think, you know what? 44 yards, formality. It's, it's three points. We've got the kicker. I don't feel that right now. I'm always kind of like relieved when Patterson makes a kick. And that's just me. That's, that's not Riley. That's me. I want... Will Reichard be Justin Tucker? Maybe, maybe not. But for such an accomplished college kicker that's also done it and won championships, the kid's a winner. He's done it in some of the harshest territories and the most partisan crowds. I think this is the time that you go get him. It has to be the most highly sought after kicker for a long time. It's not often you get the best kicker in college football history. I say Zane Gonzalez, I think is who he's passed, the former Sun Devil. He's still kicking in the league, like I say, and like I say, so Will Reichard could have that kind of future. And I just feel like he can be a weapon as well, like six six one, like 190, 200 pounds. He's not a small kid by kicker standards. He's built like some wide receivers. And I feel like you could you could do some things with him. You could have a little bit of fun with him. I say a bit of special teams and that. So yeah, I'm going and I'm potentially I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna take a gamble and say, This is my kicker for the next five to six years. Let let's stop the turnover. It ends here and now. Yeah, you know what? This is a really good class for kickers. If he comes through, I think Harrison Mevis, the Missouri kicker's coming through as well. I'd be really interested in him, but this is the year to go out and get yourself a kicker for sure. I'm ending it off 
And he's in there. He was before. I'm not seeing him move up boards, so I'm going to keep him there. But he is my small school darling for this year, or the G5 one. Always has been. Mika Abraham, the cornerback for Marshall. I started with a cornerback. I'm going to end with a quarterback. Absolutely love this guy to death. He has been a massive part of the thundering herd um, and their team over the last five years now. He's got 3,200 snaps altogether. Not really a guy you bring up to do pressure stuff. Doesn't come up blitz too often. He is a coverage guy. Bring him up against the run defense. He's had a really good season. 30 tackles. It's been seven missed, so the, the, the missed tackle rate needs to come down a bit, but it's come down from 26% last year to 19 this year. It's heading in the right direction. His run defense is the best that it's ever been. That's a big step forward he needed to take in this game. And as a coverage guy, dude's amazing. He's been targeted 56 times this year. He's given up 26 receptions. That's only 46% of the passes thrown his way are completed. He has three interceptions, eight pass breakups. He is an absolute menace when it comes to being one-on-one on an island. And the Sunbelt's got some damn good quarterbacks and receivers in there, which he's been able to hold up against. He only gave up four of 11 against Georgia Southern, four of eight against James Madison. Even in his games against the Power 5 schools, had a really good game against Virginia Tech. Only gave up three of six for 18 yards. Had a couple of pass breakups in there. He has had a great season. I don't know why he's stuck as a day three pick, but I'm absolutely going to take him if he's there. I love everything about him. The 5'11", 185-pound lucky cornerback from Marshall is going to make someone very happy at the next level. So Mika Abraham is my guy rounding out my draft. So... Interesting a bit there overall, right? Maybe some different players in there, but same same positions overall. But I do feel since we did the last one, there's more questions about the lines now. We weren't questioning D-line as much last time, but, but we are now. No, yeah. I think I took a running back in the first mock, like say, and then but then I've seen a, a duo emerge and I've seen the defense regress, I suppose. So, yeah, I've had to go with at least two D-linemen and a cornerback because I'm, I'm sat here thinking again that, okay, we'll, 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 good chance to win the division. Might win a playoff game. Defense still has fundamental issues and we're about to see a massive turnover. So it's going to be another year of addressing the defense. We're just not there yet where we can get the luxury guys in offense and we've still got holes to plug. So, yeah. Yeah, all different players, but the, the positions now are starting to become more clear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the defense still needs work. It's got to. I will put more money into it in free agency, but yeah, a lot of positions it needs to get young. So interesting. But overall, the visions remain the same, just the players, some of them have changed. Right. That is everything for us today. Um, appreciate you for listening. This has been a recorded show, but the weather up here at the minute is absolutely atrocious. We have been battered by seven days worth of rain and winds and storms, and it's played havoc with everything. So we've done it this way. 
just to make sure we get all this done. And next episode's main Lions podcast is going to be back tomorrow. It's the Chicago Bears preview with Ryan Dengle from Bear Down Report. Please do come check that out. He's a great guy. And then me and Ryan will be back next week, roughly about the 13th of December for our next version of the college show. We're going to be doing bowl predictions next week. So we will do our predictions for all the bowl games. It's, it you know, it, there's no art to it, but it's still a fun thing to do and we'll take a look at some of the stat leaders from college during the year um we'll go through some of the head coaching hires some of the ones we like some of the ones we don't we'll, we'll get you up to speed on that sort of regards and then going forward from then on it'll be a lot of player-based stuff because we are about to hit draft season as far as college football goes because it's about to go into shutdown. So you will see us again in a week. Don't forget, you can find us all over Roar of the Lions UK, our website, YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know where to find us. Um, if you've got anything you want to let us know, then please get in touch. We shall see you again very soon. Just remains for me to thank Ryan. Remains for me to thank Hank, who has made an appearance this evening as well. We shall see you very soon. Thank you very much for listening. Go Lions, one pride. Thank you for supporting the Roar of the Lions UK podcast. You can find us on our socials on YouTube at Roar of the Lions UK, Twitch, Twitter and Instagram, ROTL underscore UK, and on our website, www.roaroftheliongk.com.